0: My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit.
1: Ladies, gentlemen, travellers in time, welcome back to Ramblin', an Amblin' podcast. The podcast where we get behind the wheel of a somewhat modified DeLorean to travel back in time to check out the films from Ramblin' Entertainment. Amblin' Entertainment, I should say. (laughs) I am one half of your host, Andrew Godian.
2: And the other half, Joshua Glenn.
1: And this episode, where we're going, we don't need roads, but we would rather like to have a guest for the journey, which is why we have invited host of the Fundamentals podcast, Harley Mumford, to join us today. Welcome to
3: Ramblin', Harley. Hello guys, very happy to be here.
1: Very, very... It's very
2: nice to have have you, man.
3: I know, yeah, It's, it's good, it's like I said, I mean, we were chatting just before we came on and... It's, it's so lovely actually to be in a room with all three of us, having had both you guys mm-hmm. on my show in previous times.
2: Yeah, we've done done solo trips before, but this is the first time we're all together, so it's nice, yeah, to discuss uh, mm. to discuss this movie with with the both of you.
1: Yeah, we like I say we've ba- we've both been fortunate enough to guest on your podcast, Fundamentals, which gives guests a chance to gush about the things they love. Mm-hmm. I've been on to talk about my deep deep love for Rocky Balboa. Uh, Josh has recently been on. Uh, to discuss the matrix um my beloved uh, sure... matrix movies including the sequels <laughs> yes <laughs> not the,
0: yeah. game, the
1: sequels that's it uh, <laughs> it it's such like a cool cool idea cuz like i'm sure joshua agree with me like just being given a topic to talk about that you love uh on a and a platform to do it is such a kind of freeing and liberating uh podcast experience to enjoy is that very much like the inspiration behind the idea giving of giving people this platform
2: yeah
3: i mean i'm glad it's it's freeing and liberating for my guests it's kind of stressful for me as a host because it means <laughs> i have to <laughs> hunt people down and, and find topics and but yeah that, that, generally it's just i think like a lot of people last year i had a significant amount more of time on my hands so i thought what mm-hmm. to do with it i think you know i've always wanted to get into podcasting um yeah and long story short i just reached out to some people and. It's been an idea in my head for ages, so the whole point, as you say, with Fundamentals is just to learn, really, to have guests on. They can tell me about all sorts of topics. Like you said, you guys have done Rocky and the Matrix, just as movies, for example. Um, Others' topics have been things like pinball. Uh, I've recently recorded one about running and ultra marathons, which is really cool. I've done one about singing, musicals, like you name it. And it's just the whole point is to learn. So yeah, I I enjoy it just as much as Mm -hmm. as you guys do, and and hopefully the audience and the people out there listening will uh will get as much out of it as i do really
2: has it awoken any desires for new hobbies in you doing these conversations oh
3: that's a good question um no as much but i it has made me go back and and revisit a few things like i think just before we were recording i was saying andy's thanks to andy i've now seen all four rocky films i'm making my way through them i'm definitely going to be revisiting the matrix um it's made me check out That's new stuff. Very like, happy to hear this. I had a guest <laughs> <laughs> I had a guest on to talk about uh BTS, the K pop band, and even though I'm oh, not yeah. the biggest K pop fan, I was listening to them for like a good week afterwards. And I have to say <laughs> I really liked what I heard. I thought I was like, Yeah, I'll just check this out. So yeah, it does make me kind of explore more things. Um mm. and even my first guest talked about musicals and you know, since then I've I've watched a whole bunch of musicals a lot more than I normally do. So yeah, it does encourage that sort of I guess that discovery in myself as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's good. It's a, fa- it's a fab, fab idea. And uh, we very much enjoy bigging things up, banging the drum for yeah. things. Uh, yeah,
3: that's it, exactly. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And today we're going to be banging the drum heavily because we are discussing a, a film that's beloved by many, uh, by myself more than any other film, I think, including my beloved Matrix <laughs> films. Uh, perhaps the <laughs> finest rhythmic ceremonial ritual ever committed to celluloid. And it's 1985. <laughs> <laughs> it's 1985's time-travelling masterpiece Back to the Future uh, It's a film that, you know, is fittingly rather timeless And I'm sure everyone has seen it many, 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 many times over But just in case anyone is not that au fait with the goings-on of Back to the Future Andy, could you please give the good listeners a rundown of what occurs in Back to the Future? Absolutely.
1: I'm very happy that I'm getting a chance to do this. This is uh, my first shot at doing the plot synopsis <laughs> at the top, so I better not blow it! <laughs>
3: <laughs> no pressure.
1: No pressure. He was never in time for his classes. He wasn't in time for his dinner. Then one day, he wasn't in his time at all. It's Hill <laughs> Valley, 1985. <laughs> Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox is your normal high school kid who wants nothing more than to play in his rock band enjoy time with his beautiful girlfriend Jennifer played by Claudia Wells and how about his best pal disgraced nuclear physicist Doc Brown played by Christopher Lloyd Marty lives at home in Hill Valley with his older brother and sister Dave and Linda played by Mark McClure and Wendy Jo Sperber and his parents George, Crispin Glover and Lorraine, Leah Thompson. His father is a spineless pushover who continually bends over backwards for the needs of his supervisor, an old high school bully Biff, played by Thomas F. Wilson. His mother, meanwhile, appears to be a depressed, borderline alcoholic housewife, who you suspect is having some regrets about settling down with George, her high school sweetheart whom she fell in love with after her dad hit him with his car. Well, history is about to change for Marty and the rest of the McFlies, just not in the way that Marty could have ever predicted. When Marty goes to meet Doc late one night in the parking lot of the local mall to document his latest invention, Doc reveals that he has built a time machine. Out of a DeLorean? (laughs) Just as Doc is about to... (laughs) Just as Doc is about to make his maiden voyage across time and space, a pair of Libyan terrorists interrupt the proceedings. Gunning down Doc, who stole, plutlo- pl- eh, who stole plutonium from them in order to generate the one point twenty-one gigawatts of electricity the car it needs to travel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There'll
1: be a lot of gigawatt impressions in here. I mean. <laughs> it's the <lore>. law. <laughs> it's the law. With Doc seemingly killed by the terrorists, Marty makes a break for it by hopping in the DeLorean, gunning it past eighty-eight miles per, per hour and inadvertently sending himself back 30 years to 1955. With the time machine out of plutonium, Marty tries to keep his cool and find the 1955 version of Doc in order to help him get back to his future in 1985. But that's not before Marty runs into the teenage version of his parents and inadvertently puts his own existence in jeopardy after saving his father from being hit by Lorraine's father's car. And with Marty's mother developing feelings for Marty himself rather than George. With the doc convinced that Marty is from where he says he is, the two hatch a scheme that will not only get back to nineteen eighty five, help Marty get back to nineteen eighty-five, but will also ensure that Lorraine and George fall in love before Marty is erased from existence.
2: Oh ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Andrew Gerdion, bravo. (laughs) That was a thing of beauty. It's. I've seen this movie more times than I can recall, and it still gives me goosebumps to hear it summarized, uh, especially in such a way. It's um, a hard one yeah. to
1: figure out how to summarize it because so much yeah. of, like the film is built up on little setups for payoffs, yeah, absolutely. and absolutely uh, callbacks. So
2: it was hard to know what details to include. <laughs> it's <laughs> a very intricate little stack of dominoes, isn't it? It's hard to, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that was pretty perfect, though. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I mean, man. if you got me thank wanting you. to watch it again. As I was looking mm. over my notes yesterday and earlier on today, uh, I was, it gave me the hankering to watch the film again, even though I just watched it on <laughs> Friday night. It's just one of those things that you can come back to over and over and over and over again. Um, so, Harley, you're obviously a fan of the movie, which is why you're here to mm-hmm. talk about it today. Do you recall mm-hmm. your first experience with it?
3: Yeah, so I think for me, it's, it's probably quite similar, I would imagine, to you guys. I think we're all in the same sort of age bracket. Mm. Like, It was one of my parents absolutely loved. I think probably when I was about 10 or 11 or so it was that thing of I was getting into sci-fi and those kind of films and of course this is one of the ones that would have been suggested as a trilogy because the trilogy is great so they were just like yeah watch these movies and yeah I think ever since I saw them me and my sister's absolutely love them you know it's one of those like you said you can come back to time and time again and it it just never gets old
2: yeah yeah very much so it's um and it's it's one as well you you can watch over and over again, you can still. I mean, watching it on Friday, I was still teasing out little details that I hadn't quite picked up on before. There's there's so much like, visual density and so much obviously narrative density and the setups and payoffs that are going on. It rewards endless viewings. Um, Andy, mm. what was your uh, when? When did you first watch it? Do you remember?
1: So yeah, the, it's similar to Gremlins. I had it recorded off the TV of on a beat up VHS tape, um, and also similarly to Gremlins, it was from a um, showing on TV that took place at like three o'clock in the afternoon, so all yes. the um all all the cussing was gone. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I didn't hear, all the shits I and bastards lines... taken out. Exactly, I didn't hear all the all the like even like the unco- the iconic line of when this baby hits eighty eight miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. I didn't know that was a line until I got it on yeah. DVD further down the line. So, so I was actually yeah. robbed of one of the iconic. <laughs> <Praises> <laughs> <came from> it. <laughs> but uh like yourselves it is one i've often come back to and have a great deal of affection for from having grown up with it um even like i was watching it with my sister the other night and she she was also kind of echoing your point saying it's one of those films that has such like a level of uh craft built into its story beats that you can't help but be so invested and panicked and worried about everybody and where all the threads are going to end up no matter how many times it is that you've watched it and um, so yeah it's one of these ones I have an awful lot of like even like my notebook for <laughs> this <laughs> podcast <laughs> is a back to the future VHS tape styled notebook so that <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> kind of very talks cool. to how how deep it runs and I, I do have a very like nerdy um, thing to share with you um, from that I made myself about um, how long ago would it have been now? About 11 years ago. So it would have been for the film's 25th anniversary. Um, it was when I was at college in Guernsey and we it wasn't going to come to the local cinema in Guernsey but it was showing at the Cineworld over in Jersey. Um, and me and a couple of other uh, fans of the film um, all put tickets on the ferry to hop over the Jersey to the world to watch the twenty-fifth anniversary re-release. Uh, I don't know if you can see this. Um little ne- <laughs> little seventeen year old nerdy Andy made his own <laughs> um Back to the Future <laughs> Bolo shirt <Chet>, and drew <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> the DeLorean and the flames with the quites underneath. Holy on the, on the
2: back cow of it um that's amazing. yeah yeah that and then <laughs> oh, that's, pretty yeah, that's pretty good yeah that's pretty good um and, and, it, then on the and front, you've got the line got when this baby flux. hits 88 miles per hour yep yeah oh wow yeah a little flux capacitor, nice. on the front. capacitor makes and the little, little tie yeah
1: i got a little be that is into, yeah good. 25 <laughs> by the, uh, the, the breastplate of it as it were and then lots of different qu- quotes written on it um but um this this story has a sad has a sad ending because the day we were going to go to jersey and hop on the ferry and the weather was too bad so the ferry was cancelled so we didn't get to go <laughs> oh, <laughs> no.
3: see now i have an image of andy just stood at the dock in that, that shirt soaked <laughs> as the rain comes in just, you can you can see city world on the horizon <laughs> just staring just, the yeah. at <laughs> A single tear you're like gasping <laughs> with his green lights <laughs> <laughs>
2: that is you have yeah that story rings a bell but i think i've probably pushed it down in, in my own subconscious because it's such a sad sad tale and i'm so sorry <laughs> you had to experience that if it's any consolation andy i i that very the very re-release that you were unable to see that was the first uh re-release i ever saw in the cinema and i had a wonderful time seeing that so <laughs> hopefully my enjoyment of that can can be enough for the both of us Sure. <laughs> what's, what's
3: this salt I have in my wound? What's, what's that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, I I don't have anything fresh to offer. I had the exact same experience as the two of you, Andy in particular. My version was recorded off the television as well, so a lot of the lines were "You're going to see some serious sh" or "You son of a." Um, yeah, and I was I was I was when I it was the first DVD. In fact this when the trilogy box set came out in 2002 that was the first dvd i ever got and i in fact got a dvd player because of that um and I remember watching it and hearing the, just the sheer quantity of sons of bitches and shits and bastards was absolutely shocking to my 11-year-old ears. <laughs> 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 to the point that I, I, would, I, would, I would tally every time he said bastard in the movie. And uh, it's five times, I remember that number from when I was a young lad watching this film, a young... <laughs> oh, <easily>. my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this pearl-clutching cl- pearl little northern lad. <laughs> um... But yeah, and there was one time as well when I was um, when I was head boy in sixth form. I don't know if I've told you uh, before. Well, I, I know I've told you before, but not on the podcast. Um, I was head boy in sixth form, uh, kind of a big deal, uh, very impressive. Everyone was very, very impressed by hey,
1: it. Mate, I was head boy too. Don't worry. Were you head yeah, boy?
3: Yeah. <laughs> I you go with sixth form, so you know.
2: Fab. <laughs> <laughs> um, one time, I organised a little charity charity. Um, wheelbarrow run is it was is that a thing anywhere else sure maybe that was just (laughs) like human we we had a we we had we had no actual wheelbarrow wheelbarrow and we'd go around in aid of children in need we'd all we'd all dress up in fancy dress and we'd wheel this barrow around our local village and we'd go into local businesses and people that would pass on the street and ask for donations and stuff like that um and i dressed up uh, as martin mcfly as as one might do and I, i spent a lot of time and effort painstakingly recreating the costume to the point that i even i even printed off a save the clock tower poster cr- on blue paper crumpled it up and also emulating jennifer's handwriting wrote i love you and her phone number on the back of it and i would walk around <laughs> brandishing this <laughs> this thing <walking laughs> around the common room showing everyone um I, didn't, i'm glad yeah. you sorry happened.
3: sorry can i just pause one second there what i'm getting from that story is you were head boy but you couldn't get any girl to write that on the back of a bit of paper for you you had to do it yourself <laughs> that's the so head thank, that <laughs> thank you for joining us thank uh, you for joining us
2: thanks for joining us harley that was that was podcast. yeah and don't worry we'll share we'll share we'll share an image of me as Martin McFly on a uh, on our socials as well. Oh so you, do, you do. do you have the post poster? <laughs> um, I kept it for a while because you know what? I I have the the Primark. Um, what's the actual? Yeah. I want to say life preserver. What, what's the actual? What's the actual name? For, oh, a gilet kind of thing. Body body wa- Like a body body warmer. warmer body warmers, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah.
2: Dork thinks he's gonna drown. I think I, I still have the <laughs> uh, body warmer, and I think in the pocket of the body warmer is my crumpled up Save the Clock Tower note. Still, I think. Because I'm a, i am a really hope that's there. I really hope that's there. (laughs) Well, whenever whenever I'm able to go home again, I will rummage through my old wardrobes and see what I can dig up.
0: Mm -hmm. um, For you guys, please do.
2: (laughs) Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the development of this project um, because it's a fascinating Mm. storied history, and there's so many near misses and things that almost were, and things that could have been, and things that never should have been. Um, but before we do that, um, I want to first go into Zemeckis because this is the first Zemeckis film we've covered on the podcast. Uh, the first of many. Uh, so there's a lot to discuss with regards to where he came from that lays the groundwork for his subsequent career. So check the flux capacitor is fluxing and set your time circuits to 1973. Uh, Bobby Z, uh, as a as a young lad, he applied to the USC School of Cinematic Arts and was initially rejected due to his poor grades, but in a move that would go to represent a lot of his later career struggles, uh, was accepted due to his impassioned plea. So he's always been a grafter and a hard worker. Um, the classes that he went through were difficult in an attempt for the professors to convey to the students how hard the movie business was, But Zemeckis was largely unfazed due to a healthy cynicism imbued within him by the Chicago upbringing, which, again, we see more of throughout his career. It was during this time that he bonded with his fellow student, Bob Gale, over their shared interests. A quote from Bob Gale says, The graduate students at USC had this veneer of intellectualism. So Bob and I gravitated towards one another because we wanted to make Hollywood movies. We weren't interested in the French New Wave. We were interested in Clint Eastwood and James Bond and Walt Disney because that's how we grew up. Uh, he graduated from USC in 1973, and the pair co-wrote uh, unproduced screenplays, including Tank and Bordello of Blood, which they pitched to John Milius, who's a fellow who seems to occasionally pop up in these conversations. John Milius comes up so character. much in this podcast. <laughs> John Milius and Red Dawn in particular, yeah, it's, it's very much uh, uh, October 1955. Uh, But it wasn't until he won the Student Academy Award at USC for his short film, A Field of Honour, that he caught the attention of one Mr. Steven Spielberg. Well, I say caught the attention. Here's a quote from Spielberg. Uh, He barged right past my secretary and sat me down and showed me this student film. And I thought it was spectacular, with police cars and a riot, all dubbed to Elmer Bernstein's score for The Great Escape. So (laughs) Spielberg took on Zemeckis as... I suppose his first protege, because he was, by this point, he was, you know, just about to take over the world with Jaws, uh, or had just taken over the world with Jaws when he took him on, and he was very much in, um, for the first time, hot shit in Hollywood. Um, so Spielberg took on Zemeckis as a protege, and executive produced his first two movies. Have you guys seen either of his first two films, either 1978's I Want to Hold Your Hand, or 1980's Used Cars?
3: No, I can't say
2: that. No, how. I haven't, no. They they're good. I recently did a deep Zemeckis dive, almost like I knew we were going to get here eventually. And um, I want to hold your hand. Is this really fun and kinetic movie about a, a group of girls who travel to New York uh, to try and get in to see the Beatles play the Ed Sullivan show? And it's a really fun. It uses a lot of Beatles needle drops. It's a really fun kind of uh, evening in the life of. It's got a lot of a lot of kind of Goonies esque hyperactive energy, and it's got that fella who plays eugene in greece i oh, should have looked up his name before i eugene. mentioned him you know the guy who plays a lot of um sort of typical nerds in things oh what's his name yeah he's Was he a real weenie he plays a prominent role in that <laughs> eddie Deason. eddie Deason. yeah also plays one of the little boys in the polar express Hell no! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty great. So that kind of, and also, I want to hold your hand. um, It incorporates a lot of archival Beatles because it was made in '78 and it's set about 14 years prior when the Beatles first broke America. So it sort of shows early a lot of early Zemeckis signs there. You've got reused archival footage with people superimposed into it, and you've got a clever kind of integration of real history and fictional characters and this pretend push and pull between the two Um, and you've also got a climax set on the roof during a thunderstorm which is something that's going to come back (laughs) to this film in particular so that's one side of zemeckis that was kind of uh there from the start and the other side which was i think given its most thorough workout in used cars is his very very dark penchant for satire which is something that i think with this film we'll talk about in in quite a bit of detail because it can get a little bit muddled. Um, anyway, so um, in, in 1980's Used Cars, it's about, it's a Kurt Russell caper um, that's more influenced by the sort of raunchy sex comedies of the day. And it's got a markedly mm-hmm. meaner and more cynical street than his debut. And this is something, I think, especially watching his film, films from the very start and going through them, you do notice that he, he has that kind of something that I not not to psychoanalyse, but maybe something that's imbued in him from his Chicago upbringing and the fact that he's had to fight for every chance that he's had, really. He's got that real scrappy, um, dark streak to him, like a cynicism that I, I don't think's there in Spielberg's films. Um both films did well critically but bombed commercially. Uh as did their script that Galen Zemeckis wrote for Spielberg's first ah, grand yes. folly, nineteen forty one, which we have discussed quite a bit uh, on this podcast, which makes it uh, three for three in terms of Spielberg-backed follies. So it was the early eighties, and they—they, I they, they mean, they—they they were good at what they did. All of these films, I think, Zemeckis's first two films are more successful than nineteen forty one, but all three have interesting things going on, and they're clearly not. Uh, you know, not hacks. These, these are guys who know what they're doing. So they were looking for, they were looking for a hit. They wanted something um, to really get them back on track and, and allow them to, to sort of break into Hollywood a la their mentor. So uh, they conceived of a film about time travel, uh, but they just weren't quite sure as to what the hook of it would be. Um, not long after the release of Used Cars in 1980, uh, Bob Gale visited his parents' home and came across his father's high school yearbook uh, it was in this moment that he wondered whether he and his father would have been friends if they were at school together, and he suddenly had the idea. It came to him, a vision of this, uh, of travelling back in time to test this theory. So he shared this idea with Zemeckis, who you know, immediately caught onto to it, and he added the idea of uh, a lot of his mother's recollections of her younger days being quite contradictory. So you've got, you've got this, this thing of meeting your parents when they were your age, and potentially discovering that a lot of the uh, sanctimonious stuff they would spout at you was, in fact, a lie. (laughs) Um, So they began their draft in late 1980, uh, eschewing the usual time travel convention of the past being immutable in favour of showing how alterations can affect the future. Uh, which brings us to September 1980. They pitched the idea to Columbia Pictures president Frank Price, who listeners will recall passing on ah, ET. Frank price. Uh, a couple of years later. <laughs>
0: the
2: price, again, the price was not right. Uh, price was a fan of used cars uh, and wanted to work with the pair, but he felt the first draft needed refinement. Uh, here are a few <laughs> abandoned concepts from that first draft. Marty's father became a boxer after landing the knockout punch on Biff. Uh, and perhaps the most. <laughs> perhaps the most That's notorious um, yeah. yeah yeah. imagine that George what McFly. do you think they
1: would have done like just put Crispin Glover in like a like yeah. beefy bodysuit <laughs> 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 They could know,
0: have been po- a villain po- in a po- Rocky production. film there's your crossover yeah.
3: <laughs> I'd pay to see that Yeah. What? sounds
2: Sorry, like Josh. identity uh, no no man absolutely um And I think the most famous abandoned concept was that the time machine was going to be a fridge that was driven in the back of a truck towards a nuclear explosion, which would generate the power required to travel through time. Which, uh, two things, first of all. One, Spielberg vetoed this over the fear of kids imitating it. And two, Spielberg later reused this for his fourth entry in the Indiana Jones (laughs) franchise in uh, 2008. Two, Two much different ends. But Spielberg, much like that producer uh, of Wild Wild West, had a particular kink for giant metallic spiders. Spielberg it's clearly had... Wild Wild West.
3: <laughs> <laughs> not for this film, but someday. Someday I will use this.
1: I will nuke that
3: bridge, uh, And it will be Lord will Lord the dumbest moment fridge. in all of cinema. <laughs>
2: That's so, great, uh, I love that. <laughs> such a specific bizarre unlike Lawrence Kastan's thing about the, the guy pointing to where he hurts and the girl kissing it better like in Raiders and Continental Divide a lot mm. of uh, a lot of weird quirks coming back and back and back <laughs> um, so they were redrafting it uh, and they wanted to focus on the contrast between the modern day and the 1950s looking behind the white picket fence all american aesthetic of your frank capra say uh, as well as pushing the mother-son romance as far as they feasibly could without crossing <laughs> <laughs> the boundary into trauma the second draft took 2 months and was handed to price in april 1981 price as you might be able to predict passed the successful comedies of the time which used cars tried like sort of dabbled its hand in were the raunchier likes of animal house and porkies and meatballs so Back to the Future at the time was seen uh, as too tame by comparison. It therefore went into turnaround uh, and it was rejected approximately 40 times for similar reasons as the one Price gave. The pair, uh, being Zemeckis and Gale, therefore decided, okay, well, if it's, if it's too tame by comparison to the raunchy comedies, maybe it's, it's a, a Disney-friendly picture. So they go to Disney, <laughs> who, <laughs> who were in turn <laughs> affronted at the idea of something so risque being associated with their brand. <laughs> <laughs> These guys just can't catch a break. <laughs> well, they, they were bashed around from pillar to post. Uh, the only person still banging their drum at the time was Spielberg, who still was supporting the project and, and wanted to get it off the ground. But Zemeckis, in quite a, a, a canny move that I think has paid off dividends in his career, he thought that another Spielberg-produced flop would tar them with the brush of nepotism and would also damage Spielberg's mm. credibility. So... Uh, he knew that he needed a hit and he had to do it on his own terms and establish himself as independent from Steven Spielberg. So he decided to accept the next project offered to him. This project, as we all know well, was uh, the Michael Douglas produced and starring Romancing the Stone, which I'm sure of all... That's a, a, a classic of the rainy Sunday afternoon films, isn't it? <laughs> Romancing the Stone. It's, uh, I saw you watched it recently, Andy, didn't you?
1: I did. It's one of the ones that's come along with the... Disney Plus star catalog, so and I knew this was yeah. coming up, and I was like, I'll, I'll watch this again. I like this movie. <laughs> yeah, in like
2: it's a good fun time.
1: Why it's why it is his kind of like you say that opportunity takes to tie himself away from Spielberg. It's weird that you would choose yeah. a Indiana
2: Jones esque <laughs> adventure. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but again, like again, a much more uh, kind of cynical and. Um... Slightly more mean spirited version of Indiana Jones. Because Michael Douglas is sexier, I'd say, as well. It's got a bit more of an actual kind of libido to it. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, well, one thing I do want to pick up on with Zemeckis throughout his career is his horniness. Because Spielberg is almost chased (laughs) as a filmmaker. But Robert Zemeckis, you you will notice, I think, Back to the Future, it's kind of there intentionally for comedic effect but certainly in, in used cars and in romancing the stone there is that really sweaty steamy love scene and he he is just he's a filmmaker who has an almost adolescent horniness in him and in his films and you will yeah, like, almost just, just, you know <laughs> wait till we get to roger rabbit
3: a, a oh my goodness yeah something and a half
2: uh, but yeah have, have you seen romancing there. the stone harley
3: I haven't actually. No, this is one that I've heard a lot about, but again, haven't got round mm. to it. Now if it's on Disney Plus. I, I think I definitely mm. check it out. Mm.
1: Fun movie. It, it's,
2: it's very fun. Yeah, movie. it's it's very it's very good fun, and uh, and you know, thankfully for Zemeckis, it exceeded all expectations, and it was an absolute box office smash, and it gave him the clout to properly set up Back to the Future. So now rubbing his hands together. It was payback time. Mm -hmm. Zemeckis didn't want to go back to the studios who turned him down, so he went to Spielberg, who had recently set up Amblin, well, recently, actually, at Universal Studios, where Price now worked. Uh, As both Zemeckis and Spielberg had a grudge against uh, Price for aforementioned reasons, uh, his involvement in the project was kept to a minimum. Uh, And this is kind of like the Avengers right now. Another old friend of ours, Sidney Scheinberg, (laughs) uh, installed himself as chief chief executive uh, to oversee the studio's investment. And Amblin co-founders Kennedy and Marshall joined as further exec producers. Um, The only slight fork in the road, or not fork in the road, the only slight hiccup was the fact that Columbia still owned the rights to the project. But as luck would have it, something arose that enabled them to do a nice little swapsie. Columbia were developing a satire of the Universal-owned double indemnity called Big Trouble. The similarities meant that Columbia risked violating Universal's copyrights if they went ahead. So the studios were therefore able to do a straight-up swap. Uh, Universal gave Columbia the rights to double indemnity, and Columbia gave Universal the rights to Back to the Future. So it's after years and years of trying to get this thing off the ground and struggling to make headway, this is kind of the first in a series of perfect alignments of things that allowed this film to be what it is. Um, here's a little tidbit that I, I very much enjoy. Uh, Scheinberg suggested changing the title to Spaceman from Pluto, which he felt would I resonate that. with audiences more. Yeah. yeah uh, Bob so Gale and Robert good. Zemeckis... <laughs> I've heard well, Spielberg's response was, was, was glorious. Gale and Zemeckis didn't know how to politely reject this. So Steven Spielberg, in a really in a real dick-on-the-table move, uh, sent a memo <laughs> to Scheinberg saying, Hi, Sid, thanks for your humorous memo. We all got a big laugh out of it. Keep them coming. And this embarrassed <laughs> Scheinberg into backing down.
3: That's why Scheinberg denies this That's so this mean story. girls of him, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Stop trying to make Spaceman from Pluto happen. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just embarrass him into submission. Of course Scheinberg denies this book. Yeah you know we know we know in our hearts mm. of hearts that it's uh, that it is it's true uh, the third draft was therefore completed in July of 1984 with updated jokes and a refined sense of structure so now the project is very much uh, up and running and it's on track for a summer 1985 release let's look at casting The first choice for the role of Martin McFly was Mr. Michael J. Fox due to his performance on Family Ties, which they felt could very much convey the the manic energy that Martin McFly needs. Uh, Spielberg asked Family Ties uh, producer Gary David Goldberg to have Fox read the script. Goldberg refused as they had another lead on their show currently absent and he feared that any interference from filming a a movie would hinder the show. Uh, So he didn't even get as far as showing Fox a script. He held it from him. Uh, There were other stars considered, people... (laughs) Very rude. Uh, John Cusack, (laughs) C. Thomas Howell, Johnny Depp, Ralph Macchio, Charlie Sheen, John Cryer, Ben Stiller, Peter DeLuise, Billy Zane, old Billy Zane, uh, George (laughs) Newbern, Robert Downey Jr., Christopher Collett, and Corey Hart were all considered, but Scheinberg wanted Eric Stoltz due to his performance in Mask, and with the filming date approaching, Zemeckis accepted. Crucially, though, Scheinberg promised that if Stoltz did not work out, they could reshoot the scenes he had done. Um, Doc Brown was a little more straightforward. A few people were considered, such as Jeff Goldblum and John Lithgow, who at one point was leading the charge, uh, but it was Christopher Imagine. Lloyd who... <laughs> <laughs> well, this 88 miles per hour. You're going to see some serious shit. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, Lloyd was initially reluctant to join the project because he was thinking of doing an off-Broadway play, but it was his wife who encouraged him to do the film, and thank the heavens she did. because Can you imagine this movie? Mm-hmm. E- even, with, even with Jeff Goldblum, or even John Cleese, or Gene Hackman, or Mandy Patinkin, can you imagine George James Wood? Can you imagine any of these people? <laughs> James Wood's God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Ugly>. <laughs> 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 uh, Leah Thompson was hired when the filmmakers watched the wildlife while researching Stultz. Um and Crispin Crispin Glover, who and the Red time, Dawn, and still <laughs> and, 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 yeah, and, and Red Dawn, all comes back to Red Dawn. Uh, Crispin Glover was a much more uh, artsy-fartsy inclined individual as as he is uh, to this day, uh, and he was he, <laughs> I think he was on a slightly different level to the rest of them uh, because on set he was often. Given them much more than they wanted, and Zemeckis so often was very unhappy with the energy he was bringing, and had to really rein him in. And then rounding out the principles, you've got Tom, uh, Tom F. Wilson, who was given his first feature starring role after an early career of doing stand-up comedy. And it's, a really, it's weird with Tom Wilson, because he's so good in this movie, and such a great screen presence. And aside from Freaks and Geeks, um, he hasn't really had a major role
1: since No, man. he was in um DC's um oh, Legends of Tomorrow fairly recently where he kind of riffs yeah. on the biff um <laughs> <laughs> uh, iconography. Like have you riffs, riffs on the biff. <laughs> 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 I like that. Uh, on that note, actually
3: have you seen his um his back to the future song? Yeah. It's yes. <laughs> so good. It's so good. It's stuff he does in his stand up in later years where he basically just Yeah. He just he just does a whole song about all the so- the uh, questions that he's frequently asked, It just answers all of them <laughs> in the song, and it's it's so funny. I recommend your listeners go and check it out; it's brilliant.
2: Yeah, it's we'll pop so a link good. in our bio. Uh, he also I also there's a thing going around Twitter about a year or so ago of the, these business cards that he's printed out again, answering all the questions that he gets repeatedly asked, and he he gives them out <laughs> to the fans that he'll see in the street and at conventions and stuff.
3: You would, wouldn't you? You would. You You absolutely would. would. Just just take it. Just take it. (laughs) Sick of being asked about
2: Back to the Bloody Future. Uh, So, script locked down, cast in place, Scheinberg placated for the time being. Uh, Filming began on November 26, 1984, on a 22 week schedule, at an estimated $14 million budget. Owing to this tight schedule, editing occurred alongside the filming process, which, as this would go on to prove, was an absolute godsend. Uh, At the end of December 1984, Zemeckis reviewed the footage he had and noticed that Stoltz was was bringing not quite the energy they needed. He was uh, quite a method guy. Uh, He was bringing a very, very serious, intense energy, which was just not what the character or the film needs because the film is kind of made or or broken on the strength of its lead. Uh, Said Bob Gale, he was a good actor in the wrong role. Uh, Zemeckis therefore asked Scheinberg for permission to do whatever possible to get Fox. Spielberg called Goldberg again. Goldberg told Fox he had withheld the script and Fox snapped it up and agreed to do it, sight unseen. Uh, I think by this point, the the character Baxter was back on the show and Fox's potential absence was less of an issue. So again, a perfect alignment occurred. Uh, Many of the key scenes had already been shot with Stoltz. so filming fell 34 days behind schedule, and an additional cost of 3.5 to 4 million dollars was added on to uh, to recoup the lost time and lost footage. Um, this is where it kind of gets a little bit more painful for Fox because he would shoot Family Ties mm. during the day, and he would shoot Back to the Future following <laughs> sitcom. I mean, l- luckily he was. I think he was in his mid early mid twenties at this point, so he had the exuberance 23. I think of, when
1: he shot this, yeah.
2: So he, he could he could subsist on like two or three hours of sleep a night for 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 uh, you know, the the duration of the shoot, but it, it was exhausting. Oh boy! Um, yeah, <laughs> they would compensate for the schedule clash uh, to, and to keep costs low. The non Marty parts, uh, of some scenes would sometimes be filmed without him. So you'd have the reverse shot, and the shot itself would be filmed later on Marty's side. Later on, when he uh, when he was able to be on set, and the people have many people who were there, uh, the cast and the crew have been on record as saying that the vibe on set uh, markedly improved when Fox joined over Stoltz. There was an anecdote, I think, from Lair Thompson who said that Stoltz would eat alone in his trailer, uh, whereas Fox would sit with the cast and crew, and it was all a, a bigger, happier family, uh, which is nice.
1: Also, I don't know if you've heard this story of um, Thomas F. Wilson sharing about an intense scene that he had with Eric Stoltz, <laughs> where it, I think it's the cafeteria scene. That they yeah. were shooting at the time and stoltz was genuinely like hitting him and being a bit too aggressive and was genuinely bruising him and he was like okay you Jesus. need to take it down but you just wouldn't <laughs> and so thomas f wilson was like planning on kind of returning the favor during the, when they were going <laughs> to film the car park scene and wow. uh, outside the dance at the end but Stoltz never got the chance to shoot that scene so he never got to give him one back Oh my goodness
2: It sounds like to me Stoltz was being a real butthead (laughs) (laughs) Butthead (laughs) First of many buttheads Um, Paul Henson was brought on to teach Fox how to use a guitar to play Johnny Be Good," and choreographer Brad Jeffrey spent four weeks teaching Fox to replicate various rock star moves popularised by artists like Pete Townsend Jimi Hendrix and Chuck Berry. So in the film he isn't actually it's not actually him playing, but he is emulating the right. He knows enough it. <laughs> to make yeah, it. Look yeah, like. yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh it's not his voice either, it is the voice of I do have that note down somewhere.
1: I forget about that.
2: Like he's um, credited as like Marty McFly
1: on the soundtrack. It's
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. Mark Campbell is Marty's singing voice, but not to so as to not spoil the illusion. They didn't uh, credit him on the film, but he did get a sweet percentage of soundtrack sales, which is yeah, which is quite. Nuts. That'll do. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> uh, Zemeckis was also able to recalibrate scenes due to the reshoots and fix what wasn't working, which is uh, how they were able to. Get the, the the sort of the pacing of the individual scenes just right. Uh, production designer Lawrence G. Pauly uh, insisted on using the Universal backlot sets because of the difficulties and costs involved in making an on-location area look 1955 appropriate. Um, Hill Valley Town Square viewers might recognise as Kingston Falls from the previous couple of episodes, Gremlins. But well, I think it's much more iconic in this film and much more, yeah, much more, much more of a focal point in this film than it was there. The cinemas um, other are the locations... same place, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, other locations around LA, uh, Whitler High School is the Hill Valley High School. Marty's home and the surrounding Lion Estates are in our uh, letter, Los Angeles. Uh, 1955, homes shot in Pasadena and so on and so forth. Uh, but most of it was done on that studio set. Uh, special effects artist Ken Chase handled the old age makeup and he was hired... Because uh, different actors, Zemeckis felt would have been distracting, so he was hired to apply prosthetics and work with the actors he had. But it was uh, he was used to doing creature features and stuff with more fantastical elements, so it was quite a challenge to convincingly make these early twenties actors look like they were in there. <laughs> you know late 40s yeah, pretty good job so, yeah, I, think, yeah, I think i think so. it holds up pretty well yeah i think yeah i've never seen a film in high def though to be fair so i've only ever seen a slightly fuzzy mm. dvd copy that i have from the early noise so maybe in 4k it's a lot a of crow's scenes, feet but... and um jowls yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: i think it adds something though to the comedy of the film doesn't it, yeah, By having it, it does. yeah
2: i think it definitely does yeah and i we can discuss this in our main conversation after after i wrap this uh it's a very uh, long-winded um, contextual element up. But I think the different actors play the energies in different ways, and we can discuss who, uh, who plays it best, I suppose. Uh, filming eventually concluded after 107 days on 26th of April 1985. And as a little tidbit, the final day of filming included pickup shots of Marty and Einstein the dog in the DeLorean. So nice, pleasant, gentle, final thing to shoot. Um, dog Day F- Afternoons. Exactly. (laughs) Arthur F. was the post-production supervisor. Arthur Schmidt and Harry Kamadis were editors, and they had to put the film together, imagining where the effects would be, as there wasn't going to be time to uh, re-edit after the effects were done, so it was very much feeling it in the dark. There was a rough cut screened in May 1985, and it was generally positively received. The audience went in blind, they didn't know the gist of the film, and in the scene where Einstein is sent back in time, and the you see the flame, the um, flame tracks after the car vanishes, the audience thought Einstein was killed. That was the initial perception <laughs> of that moment. They killed the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Incinerated Einstein. Never killed the dog. <laughs> Never killed a dog. Uh, but still, ninety-nine percent of that test audiences, uh, test audience, rated it very good or excellent. Uh, based on the feedback they received the film was recut and screened for executives Uh, Scheinberg was so impressed that he moved the release date forward to July 3rd 1985 to give it more time in theatres to hopefully recoup some of that extra cost Uh, this reduced the post-production schedule to just nine weeks for special effects and editing Uh, and I know the special effects editor um, was not too happy with the final quality of the effects um, because of the required rush job Uh, to do so Um, and at this point a few scenes that were filmed that you guys may have seen on on the DVDs were were deleted one of them was Doc reading a Playboy magazine in 1955 saying hey the future looks pretty good Which, yeah. oh, I'm glad that's gone. And, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Better on the. That,
1: that
3: rather floor. sours the image of Doc in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of 1985.
2: George being coerced into buying peanut brittle from a Girl Scout. Which you see the after effects. Of, you see him pouring the peanut brittle into the bowl and eating that, but you don't see where he got it from. Which is, <laughs> I think that it's a funny scene that's to, really to funny. imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, apparently, I don't recall this, but there's a 1995 scene where George is trapped in a phone box by the guy who interrupts his dance with Lorraine, that red-headed jerk who says, Scram McFly, I'm cutting in. Scram uh, which, McFly. Yeah. At that Hate point, that you guy. just do not know that. <laughs> yeah, he's a real sack of shit. Uh, and of course, the one that I think is the smartest cut is they filmed the entire quote unquote Darth Vader scene, but I think they wisely cut after he wakes up george and they don't show the entire thing um zemeckis did consider cutting the johnny b good scene as he doesn't advance the plot but he tested well uh, with the audiences so thankfully he kept it in um the effect shots were done by ilm who did approximately 27 to 32 which is compared to the 300 in higher budget films of the time um ken ralston who was the special effects supervisor he was dissatisfied with the quality due to the rush job Uh, And the bolt of lightning effects was developed by Wes Takahashi's animation department. And a a little bit of nerdy trivia, Zemeckis picked out a single frame of bolt animation in in, in this S formation, and he asked for that effect to be replicated in 20 frames, which is how the final thunder and lightning effects uh, were done. The final cut was completed on June 23rd, 1985, at a final budget of 19 million, which is 5 million higher than the initial budget. Um... And then it was released onto a Very Grateful World. Uh, it earned $3.6 million during its opening Wednesday and Thursday, earning a further $11.3 million from 1,400 theatres during its inaugural weekend. And it was number one for its first three weekends. It fell to number two for its fourth weekend. And it was back to number one for its fifth weekend, where it stayed for the following eight weeks, which is a perfect example oh, of the kind of <laughs> word-of-mouth hit that you just... You know that you just do not see anymore and you hear these um urban myths of initial screenings where because obviously spoiler culture was a bit less of an invasive thing back then by the lack of the internet <laughs> so there's <was> a <laughs> moment in the theater when audiences are kind of because you've got their first sort of 35 40 minutes of heavy exposition and then marty's suddenly back in 1955 and there's a scene where he's in the diner and he orders his uh, his, his pepsi free Gotta pay for it. Tab. Can't give you a tablet, you ask Orbit or something. Give you something with no sugar, so he gets his coffee. And he's sitting at the cafe counter, and Biff walks in and shouts, Hey, McFly! And uh, the Lou moves out of the shot, and George is revealed as a young man sitting next to his future son. And they both turn to face Biff at the same time. And apparently, that is a moment in the cinemas when audiences clicks into place. And there's this raucous kind of laugh of appreciation, and from that point in, they're just locked in for the rest of the movie. And I would <laughs> love to, where is that point? Think, <laughs> I just think I, I think wonder that's why the it's that point. When, I just think that, that that's the point when you realise what the film is doing. That's that's when you see, okay, so th- th- you know all the setup, and this is the film saying, okay, here's what we're going to be doing for the, for the remainder of the movie. And it's such an exciting thing because. One of, the, one of the things of having seen it so often as a kid and seeing it so often throughout life is that it's so hard to imagine this film as something fresh that you're seeing for the first time. And I would kill mm. to be able to forget that I'd seen it and watch it with fresh eyes and see how these things play you know, um, in a maiden viewing. Um, so yeah, I, just, I really I, I love the idea of, of, of being in a, in a, in a theatre on that opening weekend and seeing these things play out for the first time.
1: No, I was just going to say it's definitely one of those in like there's a like a good pocket of films like that that you would if you had said proverbial time machine, you would hop back to that first weekend and sit with a yeah un- unsuspecting audience and even like oh, even man, you yeah. as the as the time traveler would know what was coming you, you would just sit and watch the watch the crowd's reactions, and that is yeah it's one yeah. of those special collection of films, I think
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and that that is that is pretty much that's pretty much it. By the end of December, uh, by the end of its theatrical run, the in initial theatrical run, Back to the Future, and an approximate box office gross of two hundred and ten point six million domestically, making it the highest grossing film of nineteen eighty five. Um, yeah, so I think that is a good position from which to spring into our broader conversation about the film as a whole. So I put it to you, gentlemen, why do you think this film uh, hit? Accord with the audiences so resoundingly in '85, and has continued to be such a an enduring, unimpeachable classic over the years.
1: Um, I would—it's I, kind of go, goes off what we were saying a lot about how there's that great amount of setup and payoff, because and, it is one of the like pure examples of how to write set up and payoff so well and effectively. Um, That uh, I'm sure is taught in so many, so many film schools as a kind of great example of this kind of very, very uh, intricate kind of writing technique. And even like in those opening scenes where it is what is effectively a big exposition dump around the dinner table where they're talking about how George and Lorraine first met. You're not, you're not really sat there thinking, "Oh, this is all set up." You are just generally. Experiencing it as like a family conversation around the dinner table, and it is just that kind of like effortlessness in the way it builds this kind of like very fantastical adventure story, and in, in like all all the way that the best emblem films do in, in a way that manages to be so kind of endearing, um, largely as a result of the kind of characters that it populates these stories with, which is why it's always wild to me that like the screenplay and the shooting um and production of it was always in this kind of like weird kind of chaotic sense of flux because it just does feel so perfectly tuned that um it's hard to imagine that it was ever kind of in a kind of scrambled mess as it as it did get into at some points
2: <laughs> yeah it's a it's it's a miracle that it that it works out like it does it's one of those things where you can you can plan for all the worlds. You, you can you can lay down these tracks, and you, you can you can you know um, do all you can to try and make something as good as it can be. But sometimes it, it, it is just luck. It's a it's a it's a, a confluence of events that that align to allow something so perfect to exist. Um, what do you think, Harley?
3: Yeah, I, it's funny you say that. I reckon that there is something in that, though. That there's so many movies. But we consider to be classics that have those like horror sort of backstories to them of nightmare productions or, you know, last minute casting and things or decisions that get made, improvised moments that just end up adding to something that is just, I think, unique and one of a kind. And it's the right ingredients just coming together. It's lightning, you know, in a bottle, as they say. And I think in this particular case, it's just that kind of film where it's got the perfect blend of everything it's got a really fun sort of you know sci-science fiction so you can have some fun and adventures there you can make it some interesting special effects and things like that for the audience to enjoy you've got great characters at the center of it and you've just got something that's so i think real and personal it's not trying to be too high concept it's just quite simple i think all of us at one time or another have perhaps thought yeah i wonder what it would have been like if i went back to school and just sort of hung around my parents just to see what they were really like for a week. I think everyone's had that kind of thought at some point or another. So to take a character and throw him in that, in that setup, you know, it's brilliant. And what you guys were saying a minute ago, it has stakes. It has payoffs, you know, everything that it sets up, it pays off nicely. That's often the trouble, isn't it? With things with like time travel movies is, or, or generally sort of high concept sci-fi is you can have so many ideas that are in the beginning and then they just get lost along the way and you can get to the end of the film and go hang on what about this point or this point but this film doesn't it just ties everything up in a neat little bow so it's, it's just the perfect combination of everything and it's a lot of fun it's just a really fun film to watch
2: so fun it is, it's, all, it's almost too fun you're watching it thinking I should not be, it, it <laughs> should not be possible to yeah. have this much fun but from, yeah I, I do agree it very much is every dramatic thread is paid off in such a supremely satisfying way but the weird thing about this movie is, as much as I'm able to watch it with a critical eye, which I'll admit is, 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 is a struggle for me, but there's a lot about this film, there's a lot of logic gaps, and there's a lot of shortcuts, and there's an awful lot of contrivance and coincidence, but it does such a good job. It, it's so well-constructed, and the setup and payoff element of it is so, so flawlessly done that it earns the right to have these things overlooked. Do you know what I mean? There's sometimes in films when these yeah. things can be a sticking point, but in this case it it does the work that enables you to overlook its shortcuts or it's, you know, um,
1: I, I also think there's, cause like, there's also a slight like knowing wink mm. to these, uh, these moments of um like you say, contriveness or like leaps and logic. Yeah. The film knows it's making a leap and it's asking you to have fun with the fact that they're making that leap. Yeah. yeah. And, like even just the whole inherent concept is, Absolutely baffling, <laughs> but you go completely along with it. Uh, like, I don't. There's a John Mulaney stand-up yes, on yes. Netflix where he talks about the uh, production meeting for what this would have been like, and they're like, "We've got this idea about this kid," and they're like, "Oh, is he a cool kid?" And it's like, "No, he's a loser." <laughs> it's like, and he's got he's best friends with a disgraced nuclear physicist, and it's like, okay, and. <laughs> it's like, does he go back in time to like? Does he go like to on a big adventure in the future, or does he go back in time to the Romans? Or like, it's like, oh no, that would that would be really cool. But no, we just gonna have him go back in time and nearly sleep with his mom. <laughs> it, it's a it's a weird cocktail, and like, yes, that stand that bit of stand up is kind of playing on like the fact that on on the surface this really should not be an idea that gets picked up and made into a multi-million dollar mm. movie. But it's also exactly why it is, is so good as a blockbuster, is that it is this kind of wildly original idea yeah. that is so seemingly left field. And it does do these little, like when he's Doc's got the time machine and he's showing the uh time, how the time gears work and what have you, and he even kind of like uh, suggests other destinations where he's <laughs> yeah. like, where you kind go back and witness the birth of Christ or <laughs> or what have you but it, it it all lands on a more specifically personal date which mm. um, particularly for uh, audiences in uh, watching it in the 80s be it from uh, those members of the audience who would have been more of Marty's age or even Marty's parents' age there's kind of, it plays to both um that I- that fantastical idea of what would it have been like to meet your parents as teenagers, and also for their- the parents to be like, oh, we can tap into a 50s nostalgia that we like, yeah. but with the kind of impeccable attention to particularly fashion in this movie. Yeah. I- that was something that really struck me in this. Like, the 50s fashion in this is... <laughs> 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 so it has that um universal- universality baked into it, particularly for... An audience at that time and, and it, it's very weird to think that if like it was made today marty would be traveling back to 1991 uh, Absolutely uh, horrible to think about that. It be like, <laughs> and he'd, be, he'd do a grunge
2: so like, he'd do like a he'd do a sort of nirvana-esque um uh yeah. <laughs> yeah. performance at the end it's your
3: cousin Barry <Yeah>. You know that depressing sound you've been looking for. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Listen
3: to... Yeah. It's, instead of like fast place blues, yeah. he'd just be playing really sad minor chords and mumbling into a microphone. <laughs> I say that with love, by the way. I love the yeah. yeah.
2: This is a grunge riff in B minor. Watch me for the changes and try to keep up, okay? <laughs>
3: <laughs> and weirdly, though, like the bit at the end where he's just on the floor riding yeah. around and it's all feedback and noise would have worked. The crowd would have loved yeah. it, they like, yeah!
2: But the thing is, he's just too darn loud. He is just too darn loud. Oh,
3: just too darn I loud. I love that. I love, that. I love this, that little cameo. Yeah, so much fun. <laughs> Unsurprisingly to people who have who've listened to my show, I have brought a bunch of guitar facts for this yeah, podcast, buddy. because of course that's the thing I <laughs> noticed when I'm watching this movie. <laughs> Paying close attention to all of that.
1: I, like, it, what is the guitar use? Is it a
3: Gibson at the end? <laughs> Yeah, so apparently that's a time-travelling guitar, ah! which this kind of fits in. I wasn't sure, actually, yeah, because it's, it's a... Uh, let me just find the exact making model. Uh, da, da, da. There is Yeah, Gibson ES-345, which was released in 1958. Uh, so, yeah, it's probably three years too early. I
1: hope somebody got fired for that. Marvin this... Berry and the Starlight as the time-travellers themselves. <laughs>
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, this is it. I figured, you know, maybe there's a deleted scene from Back to the Future 2 where Marty's yeah. time traveled to 1958 and has nicked it off of Chuck Berry and just hands it to him backstage or something. You, you don't know. You don't know. But um, wh- while I, while, I, while we're on that, I just noticed a few other things. So, like, he plays an Ibanez um, road star in the little audition where Huey Lewis comes up to him and is like, You're just too loud, which is the perfect choice if anyone knows guitars. It's like this super shreddy crazy loud instrument and i kind of love that that's what he uses but my favorite thing i learned today and i was wondering is you know that brilliant opening bit where you've got all the clocks you've got the the absolute chaos of, of uh of doc brown's studio and of course the first thing marty thinks to do is plug in a guitar to this giant mm-hmm. speaker which is just brilliant it's such a fun little gag um that little guitar that he picked up i just thought it was like a some sort of like you know um what do you call it, like a prop they just built and thought, yeah, this looks silly and we'll, we'll throw it in. Yeah. It's a real thing. It's, <laughs> like, those it's are a real, cool those exist. <laughs> I know, right? It's uh, it's it's called a jaquita and it's built by Mark Irwine, who's a very, very famous uh, luthier who's built for anyone and everyone you can think of from sort of your likes of, uh, I think it was Paul McCartney, Billy Gibbons, uh, Brian May, I think I saw on there. A bunch of people he's done work for over the years and apparently uh that particular guitar was designed by billy gibbons because he wanted a little travel guitar mm.
1: um
0: so that's
3: that's where that comes from but uh you can if you want to tune it if you're out there and you want to buy it you can get them for about 500 pounds now you, you can pick one of those there we up. go now all yeah. we just
1: need is a giant amplifier to <laughs> so go yeah, with I, I can't help you with the
3: giant speaker i don't know where you go for one
1: of
2: those. speaking of the giant speaker there's often mm. jokes that often fly around about the nature of the relationship between Marty and Doc. What's Marty doing hanging around with a disgraced scientist? That's why, right? Because he's got this big speaker yeah. and he wants to practice. That totally that, he breaks it straight <laughs> away. Though <laughs> so, Doc, Doc says it's, it don't fiddle with the levels or something because he, Doc says something about it's on the fritz. That's true. But that, that that's yeah. enough. I mean, what, what, what more do you need? Yeah. This, this kid, bit, bit of a bit of a bit of a yeah. strange kid. know, yeah, a bit, bit of a bit of a I guess a loner. By any standards, you don't really apart from needles in the sequels. You don't really see him have much in the way of. He's got.
1: He does have a genuinely lovely relationship Mm. with Jennifer as well. They're they're, they're clearly both crazy about each other. But Uh, but again, like going back to this point that John, like that kind of John Mulaney sketch, uh, kind of draws upon, is like you don't really question the fact that he's best mates with a uh, nuclear physicist who must be. Like, in his 60s to 70s? La-
2: or- I mean, <laughs> he's what? Or, say I, th- I think charitably he's in mid-40s in 55. So, yeah, he's like mid to late 70s, probably in yeah eighty-five. Yeah,
3: and, and from what we've learned from the guitar that he owns, maybe he's friends with Billy Gibbons. So, I mean, I yeah. don't know. I
2: mean,
3: that, that would be appealing to a young musician. Hey, this yeah. crazy scientist is friends with rock stars. I'm going to hang out with him. Why not?
2: <laughs> but something... Um, Something I picked up on speaking of uh, him, his and Jennifer's loving relationship, which it, it very much is a sweet relationship. But there is that moment at the start when they're in the town square, and uh, he he uh, this passing girl catches Marty's eye, and he sort of looks at yeah. her rear, and Jennifer like pulls his head back around, and that is it's slightly sleazy behaviour. But what what twigged for me was that that that's behaviour that he got from his dad, you know, because his dad was a peeping yeah. tom back in the fifties, and. You yeah. you notice it's kind of like kind of like a V shape. It, in in the original nineteen eighty five, you see how his parents' flaws sort of filter down into Marty's behavior, and then when Marty goes back to nineteen fifty five, he then feeds into their behavior, and the people they become in the new nineteen eighty five are are greatly enhanced and. Um, fixed in many ways by things (laughs) marty was able to imbue them with and it's quite a sweet little give and take it's just little setups and payoffs like that um yeah still do notice after you know 30 plus viewings
1: that is its strength as well because it is like something that everyone can kind of relate to is that you see so much like little mannerisms that you might have come from your mum and dad be it the way kind of way marty sits down and brushes his hair back or um even like on a kind of like bigger level um marty um expresses a level of anxiety to jennifer about sending out audition tapes or doing auditions and saying what if they don't like it i don't think i can accept that kind of rejection and that is an exact anxiety that his teenage dad's echoes over his own creative outlets his being writing science fiction stories and it is it is yeah it is just the one of the kind of simple genius points of it is that it's building on this very very familiar like relatable idea with uh kind of how you see yourself mm-hmm. within your within your parents
3: absolutely it, i think it plays into like the 80s thing as well doesn't it? i mean well it's 80s there's all generations of especially when you're a teenager and you're like no i don't want to be anything like my parents and you sort mm. of think you're, you're so different but it's it's as you get older you realize no yeah. of course you're going to pick up traits and behaviors <laughs> from the people who raise you and i kind of like that marty goes on that journey throughout yeah. and then like as you say, there's there's little moments where he's in the past where he realizes like oh that's where i get this from or that's oh and you can you can see it clicking in him yeah. and realizing that yeah he's not so different from them after all
2: but it's like the, he's kind of he's got elements of the worst aspects of them like the, the, the i guess the peeping tomish mm. nature of his dad but then by the same token he, he's also he's the best of them as well and um one of the notes that i made was everyone that, that he meets in 55 his dad his mum, and doc they all have um they all have it's kind of like wizard of oz they all have something they need like george needs confidence uh, his his mum needs to be curbed from her vices like she's as we see in in the original eighty five, she's drinking a lot, and you see the seeds of that being sown in, in fifty five. Uh, Doc is this kind of bumbling failed scientist, and he's kind of like Paddington. He goes around and he gives everyone he kind of fixes their <laughs> lives, and it's really nice. Oh. To Clyde Paddington, but it's nice to know having,
3: what Paddington three's. Sorry, just Paddington 3 has just been announced. So if, if, the, if the plot of the movie is not him going back in time <laughs> and helping people, I'm going to be very disappointed.
2: Fixing people in the past. But ju- just as Marty realises that he's echoing his dad's own neuroses, he then feeds his dad the line that essentially makes him into the new man. If you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. He's the one that tells George that. And that kind of becomes George's ethos at the end. Like I've always said, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Um, and it's just—it's really uh, even even that whole dynamic, that kind of <sighs> the way the past feeds into the future and the future feeds into the past again, and how you can give to your your parents learn from you as much as you learn from them, and just that 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 kind of yeah. little character bits like that, still now still eking out these new little this little subtleties. And man, I'm just I'm so in awe of the construction of this film on on, on pretty much every conceivable level.
1: I, and a big part of why I think the kind of iconography of it as lasted is that kind of also the central dynamic between Marty and Doc, which mm. I think does only work because of the very easy charm that um, Fox and Lloyd strike with each other. Like, And, and again, kind of c- coming off this, what you were going into about Stoltz's method mm. approach to uh, the role. Um, when um when he was on set, Eric Stoltz asked, was like demanded that he be called Marty the whole time. Oh, God. And um it, when it got to the point that he was fired, and um they told Christopher Lloyd that he fired. They were like, "Oh, we fired Eric." And Christopher Lloyd was like, "Who's Eric?" <laughs> <laughs> and just like the, the guy who was playing Marty And He was like, "Oh, I thought he was just called Marty." <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh wow! <laughs> but then, um, <laughs> the, even the physicality of Doc is kind of in, in, influenced by the casting of uh, of, of uh, Michael J. Fox, who's a much smaller actor than Eric Stoltz. Yeah, so he, he affects it works this so um, well. Uh, Do- uh, Christopher Lloyd affects this hunch, and he—I think he's about six foot one, and Michael J. Fox is about five five, and Christopher Lloyd reduces his height so they're almost level. Uh, certainly in the in the. 1985 scenes when he's a bit older, but just it's just it's just, it's just so per- slotting this 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 pint-sized mind to this world just fixed everything. Much like Martin McFly fixes the people that he meets, Michael J. Fox fixed this movie. He he was the final piece. Yeah. That, uh, it's such that a it
1: perfect work. introduction to a movie star role. It yeah, he's so good in it.
3: Yeah. <laughs> mm absolutely i think it's part of what makes it work as well is that the central character is genuinely quite yeah. likeable yeah yeah you know and and as you said that with with doc and mike just watching the film um for the audience i literally finished the movie seconds before jumping <laughs> on to <laughs> record it. i was watching it i was thinking like yeah the dynamic between those two characters it's perfect and obviously it carries on throughout the other sequels and it just I think that's what makes these movies so lovable yeah. is you've got these two mm-hmm. protagonists that really and the friendship's real, you know. It's really sweet that they yeah. both really care about each other, and you know, like even as Marty has to go back, and it's that really tense scene where you know he's trying to get into the car and the clock is literally ticking. Those last seconds, he's doing everything he can to warn his yeah. friend,
2: yeah, yeah. You know,
3: and I think that that's just such a sweet, it's a lovely little moment that they keep mm. throwing in at the end, is is you can see how much they really care for each other.
2: There's that point that Doc makes about it's it's going to be really hard waiting thirty years to talk about something that just happened today, and that that I think that's a very mm. that's a very poignant line reading that he gives there. Um, and there's a way yeah. when when Marty says uh, when Marty gives Doc a I'm not going to cry when Marty gives Doc a hug goodbye <laughs> when um, when Mar- but, but, Mar- Marty feels as if this is going to be he's not just saying goodbye to fifty five Doc for thirty years he's he's potentially saying goodbye to him forever because as far as he knows he won't be able to save Doc. And, and the hug that he gives him is the final time he's ever going to say goodbye to him. Mm. And the way he, I kind of made this note as a joke, but then reading it back, I, I thought maybe there's something to it. Doc reacts to that hug like it's the first hug he's ever had. You know, when, when, when Marty yeah. puts him in 55. And there's a look, almost a look of surprise, but also gratitude on Doc's face when Marty embraces him. And it's just really, like you say hi, it's just really, really sweet and genuine. And you feel that these two truly do care for each other.
1: Because yeah, there's totally there's, there's definitely an unspoken darkness to Dot Brown's yeah. background because we you get hints that he's from a maybe like a long line of kind of eccentrics and inventors but he's the one who's kind of driven driven them down a path where they've gone from being quite like affluent mm. and um, with it in a mansion and what have you um, to like what we see it see of him in eighty five at the beginning he's. Kind of working out of a big garage, effectively. Um, so yeah, there's definitely that like unspoken sadness behind him that you, I think, helps build into why Marty feels like he wants to be a, a friend to this. What is effectively probably quite a yeah, sad old yeah. man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but he even oh, says man. to Marty as Marty's going, he even says Marty, you've 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 uh, I've not got the exact line, but it's something like you, you've shown me that. I, I, I'm not a failure or I, I have succeeded yeah. or something like that. And I finally made yeah. something that works. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know what this means? Um, <laughs> and it's weird watching this movie a- every single time we cut to a new scene with a new pairing of characters I, I-, I made a note saying um, this person MVP oh no no this person MVP Yeah, Le- Thompson MVP ah <laughs> uh, Crispin Glover MVP ah uh, Tom Wilson every single yeah. person just absolutely dines out on their roles and it's uh, it's mm-hmm. a it's a real joy to see actors throwing themselves into it and yeah. t- just uh, even beyond the writing what they bring to the what they bring to the parts uh, they just feel so lived in and they're so perfectly calibrated not just on their own but the way they interweave with each other and and the, the backs and the fourth I, I i i'm kind of of the mindset currently leah thompson is the mvp but that changes with each watch it changes each time i think about it i just <laughs> i love that scene when marty is at a house. where are my pants they're over there on my hope chest and then when they're at the dinner table and she's got that kind of she she's squirming in her seat because she's so full of desire and wanting and there is this burning um insatiable there's there's a passion that she has in 55 that you can just see it, she's really unsure as to how to express it but it's there and it's, it's it's fighting to get out and it kind of it i think it colors her eventual original 1985 fate as so much more tragic because it just shows and the same is true of George that the ensuing 30 years have its beaten this out of her. She, she's a woman who's been beaten by life, just like George, who is this, this, um, burgeoning creative. He's had that beaten out of him too, by the ensuing 30 years. And I think that there's a real subtle poignance to those, those ideas that the contrast to those two performances, the, the two styles of performance, the, them playing their own age and then them playing their later age. Um, Definitely, um, and, and
1: like I think Leah Thompson has the hardest role mm. in the in the whole thing as well because she's got to be the one who's trying to make this um, the strangest element of the whole thing, where the, the 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 Freudian complex at its like most embodied work in yeah. as both a kind of like teen comedy, but also be able to operate as the heart of the whole thing. Yeah, by having her and George become the thing that needs to be reconnected and fixed yeah. by the end of the final act. And she gets put through the ringer of it a bit too, because like
2: the whole plan to reconcile that is
1: generally quite... Oh.
2: <laughs> Very traumatising. oh Because it's played for last, the scene when it's George and Marty going over the plan in the garden and they just keep pacing back and forth to and from the camera. And there's kind of a jokey line, you mean you're gonna go and touch her on her... And that's that's his mum. Like, he's got to justify... It's It's a weird plan. very traumatising.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It it really is. But as you said, I I think it it lends to... I I just made it in my notes. The whole scene with Marty and the rain in the car is... It's brilliant, isn't it? It's (laughs) it's so awkward. And it's that perfect... Both of them are really, really good in that role. It's just that... And it's that bit when she, she lands a kiss on him and he looks yeah. absolutely horrified. And then yeah. she's just like, I feel like I'm yeah. kissing my brother. And just the way she says it and the whole, like, the, the, it's like sort yeah. of, oh, that's a shame. And he's just sat there, like, just, like, eyes are <gasps> screaming, like, <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> years of therapy <laughs> and you, you oh, kind of geez. feel
1: the audience's relief in that moment as well when mark yeah. kind of realizes yeah. that she also thinks it's weird yeah, yeah. then they just kind of go yeah. oh okay. god <laughs> <laughs> well, bob bob gale did say that
2: the crew the, the key to making, and then you get the <laughs> yeah go on
1: no yeah you go you, you say this point no, I was now.
2: Say, yeah I was <laughs> say that uh, bob, bob gale did say that the key to making that dynamic work and the key to keeping it from going over that line into unforgivable territory is that lorraine's got to be the one who realises and who backs out from it. He's gotta yeah. be on the to do that. Yeah. Um what were you gonna say though, Andy?
1: But and then from that moment it then develops into like what is the darkest beat of the film where she yeah. is suddenly front going from a kind of setup of genuine of up of sexual threat to a genuine moment of uh threat from Biff invading yeah. the space and then but in turns actually setting up the stage for George to prove himself in a more meaningful way um which again like is that is the kind of like key moment in terms of like the changing of the fate as it were isn't it when uh and that again that moment is so brilliantly played by the three of them because thomas f wilson i don't think is really playing that for laughs he's playing that with with, like really genuine menace and Mm. The moment where Crispin Glover turns up and it's like he's got that great, exasperated kind of like oh yeah. and kind of uh element to his performance. And even when he does eventually whack Biff in the face and save Lorraine, that I think the most perfect like moment of Crispin Glover's like weird performance, but like so yeah. genuinely like kind of enthralling performance is when he's got this rush of adrenaline still oh, going man. through him and is holding his hand up and it's like oh, yeah. And the grin that kind of comes on his face for having <laughs> like finally socked his bully in the jaw. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, the, the the bit that gets me is obviously I think Marty is the one who enables them to think, puts them on the path to like self actualization but each of the characters have to do it themselves. And there's a moment in that scene, Andy, when um, it's so much more intense. It's always more intense than I remember it being. The the the, the music is. Getting that your hairs sort of prickling, you, you sort of makes mm. you bristle. It's quite done, and then done, yeah, done, done. and then you can you, you you've got this hulking figure of Biff just completely obscuring um, Lorraine in the shot, and and she's like gasping for air and she's like crying for help. And there's a bit when George opens the car door and goes, "Hey, you get your damn hands off her!" And Lorraine's like trying to trying to make eye contact, and you can see her eyes are screaming. And there's a bit when um, they make eye contact, and it's almost like. As soon as he sees the fear and the pleading in Lorraine's face, George is at a point where he knows that he 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 knows that he isn't going to win this. Old, he feels that he isn't going to win any confrontation with Biff, this huge man against this little Irish bug, in, in inverted commas. Um, he knows that any, any physical confrontation he isn't going to win. But as soon as he sees Lorraine's eyes and as soon as he hears her cry for help, he knows that he can't turn away. And there's that moment when he, like, the way he says... No, Biff, you leave her alone. That is, oh man, I, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about what, what that means for him as a character. That's that's the moment he becomes the like. It's his density. It is. I mean, his destiny. But it's like, <laughs> he, he knows he's going to get his ass kicked, and he knows that he he has no way of uh, of of winning physically. But he can't. He knows it's the right thing to do, and he that that's when he kind of becomes there's just something so pure and true in that moment and I think it's really beautiful that, yeah. that, re- that realisation and it's all mm. it's all in the eyes it's in her eyes screaming for help and that look of resignation on George's face when he says I've got to take a stand here which is something that he has never done before the act of just taking a stand not even punching Biff the moment for him is when he decides to not walk away when he stays and I just think it's yeah. I mean, so oh man that, 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 that's the bit that makes me cry the first time in this
3: movie oh, do you know yeah i think that's totally you're totally right i mean it, i was just thinking actually when i was watching it is that moment where the yeah, Biff says you know just walk away and you think and and every confrontation prior to that he has completely backed yeah. down you know he, he, no matter even when biff is sort of joking with him and his tone he doesn't even have to raise his voice or be serious he just he's so scared mm. of him but like you say in that moment he, the, he he's playing it with malice as you say it's 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 got that real dark moment but then i think again that plays to what we were saying earlier that this film has real stakes and that's a real moment and it's like you said it endears you it also endears the audience to to george as a character because it's a nice character growth but it's so much more meaningful because he's not just standing up to his bully he's now also protecting lorraine and he's doing the right thing you know and yeah you said it just adds that moment so when he does deck him it's like the most oh, satisfying punch man. in history isn't it it is isn't it it really I is love that, i love that biff spins on his heel as well he yeah. just makes it even better <laughs> and like, yeah and like smacks against the, the sound design so much so that of course in the sequel we yeah. get to see it all over again <laughs> from a different angle, it's just so
2: satisfying it is but that's the, uh, that, that's that's kind of the film earns the shit out of all these moments it it really for, for any uh shortcuts it might take it really puts in the work where it counts so when it when it gets to the final half hour of just toppling those dominoes that it's lined up it's able to do so there's mm-hmm. like three emotional climaxes in this building crescendo and it's it it's mm. such a it, it's one of the one of the finest segments of any blockbuster i think Ever met? I mean, obviously I'm biased. Yeah. It's my favourite film, but I think the final like half hour of this <laughs> film, the way it just caps up, caps off everything it has been setting up, it's just um, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But that's yeah, what you cause...
3: want, though y- y- mm-hmm. you, I think. Sorry, sorry to cut an in, Andy. Just coming back to what you were saying earlier, like yeah, we can make jokes about yeah they've got a time machine and where do they choose to go? Oh, the fifties to see his parents. It's like yeah, it's very low stakes in that way but it's very high emotional stakes for each character and it makes it really personal. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I love a good blockbuster. I love all the the kind of stories where it's, you know, whether it's a Star Wars or a Marvel film where it's crazy action, all the stuff going on, that's great. But even those films and franchises know that in order to get those big moments to land, you need to have some personal moments with the characters. You need to have things that earn it. I mean, think about Endgame, for example. How satisfying is it when Cat picks up the hammer and wallop Thanos with it. How, that would have meant nothing had we not had the character development of him throughout all the movies. If he just turned up at the end and done it, he'd have been like, oh, who's this guy? You know, or it, it wouldn't have been anywhere near as satisfying. Whereas, it's like you say in this, it's, you've got to have that moment. And that's what this film does so well. Is it, like you guys have been saying, it gives you real characters that bounce off each other so well. They've all got flaws. They've all got journeys. And by the end of it, not only is the the general story tied up nicely, but each person's sort of personal character arc is resolved, and I think that's just what makes it so satisfying to watch. In those little moments, it's just like a real fist in the air moment. You're like, "Yes, you guys did mm-hmm. it!"
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Definitely, there's such a like a fulfilling sense of completion to them all, and like you say, Josh, that is in this last half hour, where it's all kind of all coming together in ways that kind of shifts what they're Ultimately, what their destinies are going to be, mm. and like even kind of coming back to like, yes, the stakes do ultimately are uh, uh, what is on the line is Martin McFly ever actually existing, with his <laughs> ha- hand fading away and what have you. So yes, this punch, punch and biff in the face is a good move to resolving that, but it's not going to quite do it. There is still a world-ending stake there with yeah. Marty's existence on the line, but all it boils down to is a kiss at a school dance, oh. and that is kind of like. Ultimately, what distills it as it's pure, like lightning in the bottle, genius to <sighs> me as well. That the stakes are that big, but it comes down mm. to something so yeah. kind of seemingly mundane, but kind of <sighs> ca- cataclysmic as a kiss at a school dance.
2: And it's the, the 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 way it milks out that moment too. I I, I as listeners will know, I yeah. am an easy cry, and we we joked about how Andy is made of stone because he doesn't cry at ET. But I think there's a different kind of <laughs> tears are eked out of me watching this film, and we'll texting about it, will we, Andy? And I think we used the comparison that you made, Holly, too. That moment when yeah. he's fading away on stage, and then, then oh, I'm gonna cry again. Then they kiss, and then <laughs> and the score lifts, and the song comes back in, and Earth Angel, Earth Angel, and it kind of it, oh, and and then great song. It's like um, Marty kind of sits up, and then they fade back in the photo one, two, three, and it's in time with the music. And then George looks over and waves at him and he waves back to George and he kind of flexes his hand as if to say, Look, I'm 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 still here. And then the strings swell and the camera pulls back for a wide shot and then oh Christ almighty. That's it's emotionally affecting sure. But it always makes me cry because there's just there's something about seeing a film pay off an emotional setup so well that just i think at its bottom level it can make your hair stand up and give you goosebumps but i think when it's done this well it just it just makes me cry when you, you cry when you see something he's <laughs> like crying because you're grateful to see something done so well and we, i i asked you if you ever do this andy and you you said kind of i can feel myself welling up sometimes and the example that you used was the hammer bit in endgame because it was yeah. <laughs> no, it's funny you should mention that harley exactly yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very strange you mentioned that. That it's like yeah, that
1: is one of the similar moments where you just like the kind of element of so much investment goes yeah. in and the kind of build up of goose pimples gets you
3: right and they kinda of,
1: hit you right in the eyes. <laughs> oh, man, that-
3: that that was that moment for me in cinema where I I nearly yeah. leapt out of uh, out of my <laughs> yeah. chair in the cinema. It was just like, so <laughs> satisfying. But like, but again, it's it's all about character. Yeah. It's because you you've gone you've gone with that guy on yeah. all this on this massive journey across movies. So it just makes it so much more satisfying when you've got a payoff. And again, I think that's what the writers of this film understood. because you've got to care about these characters. You've got to solidify these moments so they're personally satisfying to each mm. person.
2: Mm-hmm. Otherwise.
3: It's just not going to land. Um, and I think, yeah, that's that's what they did so well. And as you say, it led to just a, a genuinely sweet moment and and the use of score, as you said, I, that was one thing that stood out to me, that bit, where they finally kiss and, like you say, the, the main oh, theme just kicks in and you feel it building. And it's, like, oh,
0: it's, it's so, so good. good. The use of music yeah. in this film
3: is incredible. To come back to what I think one of you guys mentioned earlier when I was talking about the big amp and everything, obviously following that comical scene you then get straight into you know the power of love which what an amazing use of that song like just mm. that's such a great <laughs> tune just of bang straight into and it always like immediately you're like all yeah. right yeah i'm on board yeah. with this let's see where this guy goes that's let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: and along with the huey lewis and the new song and we've talked about the kind of the way the score comes in at like really key moments and swells with this like the really resonant theme uh this is like for me anyway it's hand hands down hands down alan silvestri's best score and uh fun, fun little trivia fact it was the largest ever uh orchestra assembled at that time for a film score with a Whopping eighty-five musicians, and you can fe- oh, feel and wow. hear every single damn one of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. Um, yeah, like it's so baked into like part of why this, the DNA of this film is so resonant, and that like the, the iconography of it is a big part. The music is a big part of that, um, and I, I love that. Like it's it's a detail I made a note of when. I was watching it for this and I'm not sure if I'd ever fully kind of clocked it or acknowledged it before is the fact that the score doesn't actually come in until the very first time that you see the DeLorean. So it's literally mm. the moment of the beckoning fantastical adventure that's about to take place, which, uh, uh yeah. Uh, and I, I do love Silvestri, like even going back to, it, he scores the big moment in Avengers Endgame, So he's still a guy who's <laughs> like doing a lot of big, big huge scores and big, yeah. big moments but this is still his best and one of like just hands down the best adventure movie scores i can think of
2: yeah oh absolutely and it gets it just uh it runs the the gauntlet on um on sort of bringing emotions out of the audience it has those big bombastic but it also has that little that little tingle that kind of it signifies like <laughs> an <laughs> unease or a disappointment. Yeah, you know when he when he's when he's when he's first back in fifty five and he's, he's um well, after he's destroyed one of Old Man Peabody's pine trees and he's on the country road and I he <laughs> Why,
0: you space bastard. You, know, I
3: love that that guy jumps to aliens like, yes. so quickly <laughs> just because his son's like, look a comic, and it's go like, what? yep, I'm gonna go out and commit murder. <laughs>
2: Andy, Andy, Andy said that he wanted to do a particular line reading. Go on, Andy, do the do the line.
1: I'm I uh, trying to remember. the last time. it's like an airplane
0: Well, wings. <laughs> <laughs> it's already changed. to human form. Dad, shoot <laughs> it! So, that like you say?
1: Uh, he's so quick to believe that his kid's yeah. comic book is the de facto
2: authority on this moment. <laughs> it's like an airplane. But when he... Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when Marty drives up to Lyon, what will eventually become the estate that he lives on, and he sees just the, <laughs> just the opening gates and the billboard of, of these homes to come, and the music goes... diddly yeah. And it's just so... Oh, it's just such an effective way to... It's, like, it's intrigue, but it's unease, and it's this, this, this sense of uncanniness, and he conveys so much in his music, and it's so baked into the cake, overall
1: and um uh it's so strange that spielberg didn't want him initially because he didn't like his score for romancing the stone but i i really like the score to romancing the stone as well it's got like this really steamy saxophone it's very different but it's got yeah. like this really, really great sax involved and i'm a sucker
3: for a sax is all i can say you are a sucker for a sax <laughs> yeah so you really enjoyed the intro of the school band then Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. It's really cool, it's also,
1: it's also why I think um, Back in Time is the superior
2: Huey, Huey Lewis song, because it has a better saxophone. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you were saying, Harley, how the, the music has... Um, a, a direct relationship with the film, and it, it kind of it, mm. in, in a way it forms a part of the dialogue and and, and it's 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 sort of so ingrained into the DNA of the film. and so often a piece of music will cap off a scene or will act as its own kind of full stop or even even a punchline. Like I think about when you like you mentioned when you first hear the power of love at the start and you have Marty go, damn it, I'm late for school. And then the song <laughs> buff comes in damn, as as damn. like a period to that scene. And it's um it's just a very very effective. I don't know the the way the music is used to sort of interact with the action on screen and to sort of be- usher it along and um, yeah. Just the music, the use of music in this film is so so very effective and uh, so full of character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
3: Do you think of all the big dramatic moments that are kind of capped off with a bam, yeah. Yes, yeah. It just makes it so much more satisfying. I think of the bit where uh, Marty runs over the top of Biff's car. Like it's it's a fun scene. <laughs> yeah. It's a great moment to end, but it's made so much better by the score just kicking in at that moment. It's just like a yeah, fist in the air moment.
2: And there's that lovely bit as well. One one of the things I'm very grateful for this film doing is lingering on Doc Brown's. Um, Reaction, you know, after Marty goes back in time, and you have Doc go, that was awful. (laughs) I was trying to do. (laughs) Nobody can scream quite like Christopher Lloyd. He's got he's got such a a great litany of screams in this film. But there's that one where he kind of goes, and the score goes. No, that's too major. It's it's much more of a low key and you get to sit in doc's reaction for a for a beat or two yeah for a beat it's really nice everyone kind of everyone gets to enjoy their moments of self-actualization even yeah. i think lorraine's is a bit less pronounced but it's more sort of giddy schoolgirl excitement of being able to take home the boy who beat up the bully you know that, yeah. i guess i guess that's kind of the closest she gets to a moment like that but it's um yeah, it's a really nice musical accompaniment to Doc's moment at the end.
3: Mm. I, I love the piano in the the tower scene at the end, where it's mm. like dun, 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 like that kind dun, of like dun, 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 dun. Yeah. very <laughs> intense little, almost like a bass line underneath Doc, yeah, the whole thing that's yeah. happening. It's it just adds to it, doesn't it? it just adds to all of yeah. it. And speaking yeah. of music, I've got one other fact for you guys. It's not to do with the score, but it's to do with that incredible moment where uh, Marty scares the ever living daylights out of his dad by dressing up as the spaceman <laughs> and, like, and, and blast music into his ears so if you notice on the tape it says eddie van halen yeah and it just cuts mm-hmm. to like crazy screaming guitar noises yeah um i did a little diving on that because i thought it doesn't sound like any song of theirs um and it is it wasn't apparently um eddie agreed to do it as a favor to quincy jones the producer um oh really it, it's just him riffing Hence why the tape says <laughs> Eddie Van Halen because he doesn't—he doesn't want it to be affiliated with the band. He's like, yeah. "Oh, I'll just I'll come in the studio, and She's make some got noise." The... <laughs> Uh, yeah how's, and it's, and it's how's
1: this it's, teenage kid like martin mcfly <laughs> managed to get like this bespoke 1985
3: like van halen would have just released 1984 they would have been the biggest band in the world like how does he how did he do that
1: <laughs> <laughs> Marty mcfly's got this like <laughs> complete tap to uh like uncut Demos of like, oh, man. Big rock stars at the time. he's got
2: some weird connections, <laughs> weird connections. That boy hasn't
1: he? He does. Well, that's another bit of trivia that I like learned of one of the other elements that they dropped in the screenplay, funny enough, like to kind of <laughs> Marty with his bootleg tapes. Is like, what apparently one element of his character beforehand was that he was a, as a teen in the 80s, he was a, a pirate video. Um, <laughs> um dealer. <laughs> and that was gonna be an element of his character that they ended Maybe up. Maybe that
3: explains dropping. why Eric Stoltz played him so seriously, because he thought he had this like yes. criminal background. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he brought this really intense part of the character to the foreground, but no one else knew it. But they were like, We we dropped it. It's not in the script anymore. Eric, let like, it too too go. Late. I'm in the zone. <laughs>
1: Just drop it, Eric. I'm sorry, Mar- Marty, let it go. I'm sorry, Marty. <laughs>
2: don't, don't hit me again. <laughs> um, c- a couple more things I want to I wanna bring up. And the first and the mm-hmm. chief chief of those is kind of hinted at that in the, the context discussion earlier on was um, Zemeckis' slightly more cynical nature and his relationship to satire, which I, he's got a very conflicted relationship with satire and i I don't think it's always immediately apparent that he's being satirical and i think sometimes even he kind of tries to have his satirical cake and eat it as well and this this film mostly works as um by by combining what gail and zemeckis brought to the script so befriending your parents as kids and also uncovering that a lot of what they told you about their childhoods was in fact a lie and that is very much a reagan era comment on this Fake mm. sort of Norman Rockwellish, all-American um, rewriting of history to a point. Like a, l- a lot of the imagery of '55, it's is very lovingly done, and, and the detail is lush. But it, it's kind. There's a slight artificiality to it. And Zemeckis even said that he wanted to to recreate this kind of retrospective view of '55. It's not going for um, uh, absolute realism. It's going for this kind of mm. nostalgic view of '55. To the point that it even. Like the fabrics they used were contemporary to 1985 that they, they didn't go as far as to actually use material from the from the 50s it was kind of um anachronistic to a point so i think the film the, the, there is some things slightly satirical in the film in that it's trying to undermine a lot of reagan america's self-nostalgizing of the 50s and the way that reagan would look back to the post-war period as this this time when america was great and pure and um you you know you know uh, the white picket fence nuclear family all that jazz i think the film is poking holes in that and saying you know look at it there there was there was rampant sexual abuse there was uh, vice you know um it wasn't alcoholism yeah exactly it wasn't pure and innocent it wasn't this innocent bastion of, of morality that sort of Reagan and those politics paint it as. And the film does a good job, I think, of of of, of not making too big a deal of its satire in that regard. But I think where Zemeckis' relationship with his satire gets a bit more complicated is in the the fi- the end of the movie, the final sort of 10 minutes, once Marty arrives home. <laughs> and he sees the... So weird. Yeah, <laughs> he, he sees the results of what he's done. And I know Crispin Glover, it, he's slightly uh, off out, out of the fray. He's not really... He only rarely does or did mainstream films to finance his more esoteric solo projects, and he said uh, like Beowulf like well yeah, exactly like Beowulf uh, Ch- <laughs> like Charlie's angels he um, yeah. <laughs> but he he has said that there's parts of the films that he likes, but he hates the end of the film because he feels that it indulges in materialism and consumerism and it, it posits that happiness is achievable through material gain, and it does strike a weird a weird note that kind of makes it seem much more Reaganite than I think the rest of the movie is. And Zemeckis has said that he was intended to be satirical with that final scene, but the satire, the quote-unquote satire that the final scene presents is very, very different to what the rest of the film is doing. And um, I think it it is... I don't really know what to make of that. I I know we, we briefly touched upon it, Andy, when we were texting the other day. But what do you guys think of that final scene? Do you, do you see there being satire in it? What do you think was the passing message, or do you think it was just that Zemeckis slightly garbled what he was getting at, which which is something that he has done, and I think that that element to Zemeckis reaches its pinnacle in Forrest Gump, which I think is a film that's much more cynical and satirical than its detractors claim that it is, but it it gets sort of muddled with its own intentions. So yeah. What do you guys think of the of the final scene of Back to the Future?
3: Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I, it's funny, I hadn't thought about it through this sort of satirical lens, mm. but you've you got a point. I mean, uh, I do enjoy that angle, particularly looking back on the 50s and, as you say, that the absolute level of hypocrisy that comes mm. from the parents and stuff is, is quite yeah, amusing. Yeah. But, yeah, as far as the ending goes, yeah, I think you're right. It, it certainly, if, if that was his intention, was to continue that, sort of thread through mm. to the end i think it, it definitely got lost for me at the end i yeah. feel like the end was more of a sort of happy resolution and I, I, I didn't really pick up on anything being particularly satirical or like a commentary mm. it was more just as you say well everything worked out and everyone's <laughs> achieved their dreams and yeah. it's, you know it's all good
2: and now they're rich
3: yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i I think i agree because like particularly there's a, a lot in that kind of like even before that like that kind of both plays in on satire and is just kind of like a bit more playing in a register of more broad comedy particularly mm. like the whole um hey chuck it's your co- cousin marvin berry <laughs> yeah here's a white guy inventing the yeah, sound yeah. of chuck berry <laughs> that is an element of it that like loses the kind of satirical edge and just goes for like what is quite like a fu- like it's a funny gag um, yeah. and I think that, that is the sort of energy I see the kind of like final, final moments kind of playing in a similar sort of key where it is, um, using the kind of, uh, what you've seen as uh, of the home space in the original 1985 yeah. and playing it for like this kind of like ludicrous again, like, like a gag again, mm. um, where all the roles are reversed. You see Biff is now this kind of like hunched over <laughs> um dealership guy and yeah. um like you said that um George and Lorraine are uh that's like really happy, healthy, fresh couple and um his, even Marty's older siblings are more uh out, uh outgoing and clearly more successful people with better jobs than they were hinted to be shown as like his brother's gone from having a wearing a burger king uniform to being a guy always wears his suit to the office so it, it does feel <laughs> like it's again just playing more on but even like you can see that as um it playing into the idea of again satirizing reagan's idea of the perfect america mm. by because it's being played in such like a high yeah register of comedy it is saying look how ridiculous this kind of wish fulfillment <laughs> is yeah. Look yeah. how ridiculous this looks compared to how like actual families look.
0: Yeah,
2: this is ridiculous. <laughs> well, like, but, yeah, and, and I think the, the final B is uh, it's your kids, Marty. So to grabbing time with your kids. <laughs> and so, like, it, no, no matter how much you have that material success, it's never going to be perfect forever. There's still going to be stuff down the line you've got to fix and stuff. So yeah. I to be honest mm. it, it's never bothered me to the point that it sours the movie and i think you can definitely no, because c- it's just like ridiculous with yeah the film, yeah
1: and, I, and mm. the film is very aware that that is what yeah. it is
2: <laughs> but it, it even yeah. it even slightly undercuts the triumph by by mm. <laughs> the, the tag at the end which the the end of the film was never meant to set up a sequel it was always a cheeky little joke from zemeckis and gale but obviously the the success of the film quite necessitated sequels um but yeah (laughs) you will do more (laughs) (laughs) i think it undercuts it enough that it's that it's not a problem i think that the reason for the lingering issue with it is the fact that reagan liked the film so much and he screened it in the white house and he even quoted the final line of the film in in his state of the union address in 85 86 something so that's probably not helped the film's Mm. legacy but yeah, but
3: isn't that kind of what satire does though because mm. it's often misunderstood by the, yeah. the people mm-hmm. whom it's mocking
2: yeah. Like, yeah, that's
3: quite common that they'll then quote something like that and then not realise it's actually poking fun at them which yeah. kind of makes it even more delicious <laughs> like, when you think about it Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> like to bring it back to music like how Reagan would play Born in the USA at his presidential speeches like apparently oblivious mm. as to what the song's lyrical content <laughs> but then so yeah. many people misunderstand bruce springsteen i misunderstood bruce springsteen to because listen to that. him yeah <laughs> i thought he was big dumb americana but he's very much not is he? he's very sort of um nah. there's no there's a lot of problems with this country and uh yeah
3: there, there was that reminds me of i can't remember really the band there's that aussie band that did the song beds are burning and that's quite like a sort of damning song on immigration and the treatment of uh of the natives and like right wing politicians mm. have been known to kind of quote it and and be like oh yeah I really like this song it's like yeah but it's very anti you know, <laughs> you, know, you, don't realize, <laughs> you know it's it's yeah it's, yeah, it's like people playing rage against the machine songs and then being surprised <laughs> that they have certain views that, yeah you know, exactly. <laughs> don't line up with theirs you know, like, yeah well oh, this tom morello keeps talking about politics like yeah
2: <laughs> some <laughs> of those is? at work forces are the same that burnt crosses and oh yeah, you're well, telling me you this guy's is is political
3: <laughs> yeah what do you
2: think <laughs> right?
3: but yeah to your point though actually thinking about the end note i guess yeah when you when you realize that that wasn't setting up a sequel initially that mm. kind of adds a little button on the end of, yeah you know, absolutely it's yeah. never gonna be enough is it yeah you know, there's always yeah. something else you're gonna mm-hmm. fix and i i do like the very true the kind of massive leap in logic and it's like you say it's quite a comical <laughs> yeah. look that one kiss at a school dance and suddenly your entire lives are completely yeah different. yeah everything mm-hmm. has turned out okay it's like <laughs> again as you say obviously it's it's a bit chunk tongue-in-cheek and like yeah that's yeah. not how real life works <laughs> but you know <laughs>
1: uh there's a there's a point on that that makes me like overthink a lot about what the uh, this film is saying about on a kind of me- metaphysical mm-hmm. um greater narrative for these characters in terms of uh <laughs> um, notions of parallel realities and um, the space-time continuum because <laughs> there is that that lingering <laughs> like quite like existential fear that i have in this moment of the film of what has happened to the alternative 1985 yes. <laughs> Marty McFly because <laughs> yeah. this is clearly the the Marty McFly that drops into this new 1985 is clearly the one that still from the beginning of the film who knows that his reality was not like this. Yeah. So what has happened to the Marty that existed? <laughs> is it, is in it like this that episode?
3: Reality? Is it like that episode of Rick and Morty where where uh, I think Rick gives Morty the um the do over device. Yes, and yeah. It, like, and, it, and like every time he does a do over, it it melts another Morty from a yeah, different yeah, dimension. Absolutely. <laughs> like, at the end, he's killed like three hundred Mortys or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, that that's what it is. That's the B cut.
2: <laughs> I, I had I had an idea that it's either every time uh, Marty goes back in time, it starts a new parallel universe, or the other one is that it's kind of like a figure eight time loop. So. The Marty, right. the Marty from mm-hmm. the new 1985 goes back to the 1955 of his universe. And at that point, there are two Martys arriving at the exact same time. Right, And either they cancel each other out or they're both killed by old man Peabody. <laughs> 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 and then that would mean that the new Marty negates the old Marty and events unfold as they originally would have in that 1985, which creates the original 1985, in which the Marty we know and love then goes back to the 1955 for that universe and is able to change things like he does. And so it's kind of like a, it's a, a figure yeah. eight time, we kind of like loop it, it's the universe like just that. constantly balancing itself, yeah, out. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which
3: is and the... instead of it being twin pines or lone pines, it's murder pines. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: Like pine shotgun pine first <laughs> yeah. <Bastard>. it's um <laughs> it's an aeroplane without wings, pine mm. yes. <laughs> spaceman from Pluto pines. yeah
3: <laughs> like you said, infinite loop it, it all comes round
1: I like that very a lot Josh like, <laughs> I know you said it yeah. You said to me before going into this you had a theory to share around that idea and you weren't too sure if it
2: holds much water but I, I like that. <laughs> it works with the sci-fi logic yeah. in my brain. <laughs> it ultimately does. I think that the film has got a very tongue-in-cheek relationship with its sci-fi and I think what I love is that it, it, the, it gives you just enough to explain the time travel logic in the logic of the world. It, it doesn't really hold any yeah. water externally but as long as it makes sense in the film that's all that matters. And there's a, a problem that an extreme example is a film like Primer that tries to it's kind of like a thesis on how time travel would happen if it were done in real life and it's I mean it's not enjoyable on the same level as this but it's certainly interesting (laughs) and then you have something like Deja Vu which, which it does that thing of folding a piece of paper and putting a pen through it to show what time travel looks like and the
1: old event horizon yeah
2: I think the more you try to explain it to make it seem real and justifiable the, the the stupider it seems so i think this film does a great yeah. job of keeping it at arm's length and um yeah. and well, it's th- science there's... fiction to
1: quote yeah science fiction and, yeah, exactly, and to quote exactly. paul rudd in to quote paul rudd in avengers <laughs> end game it's like do you mean back to the future is a load of bullshit
2: <laughs> <laughs> but this film is so good everywhere else that the fact that it makes no mm. logical sense doesn't matter that's the oh, crazy part, thing about it's it. It's definitely part of the fun. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's definitely is. part of the fun of it. Yeah, yeah. And even even how the, the rules of what can and can't be changed, like the fact that Marty, that George and Lorraine are completely different people and yet things still occur exactly as they would have in the new 1985. Who cares? Who gives a shit? The fact that... Um, mm-hmm. uh, Go- he's still with Jennifer yeah still with Jennifer <laughs> Goldie Wilson was always going to have been mayor even in original 1985 but somehow Marty gives him the idea you know who who really cares what, what can and can be changed when the <laughs> film is this satisfying elsewhere I mean that last point there does have some slightly iffy racial politics just like the Chuck Berry thing does but I, I don't know I think the film is pure of heart I don't think that it was I think it's just an oversight yeah. on the part of the writers. I don't think it was I don't think it was intentionally a kind of uh Undermining black achievements decision. Mm-hmm. I
3: will say, as somebody who has many a phone call at concerts, you mm. cannot hear a thing. <laughs> no,
2: the band no. say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just would have been noise. That
3: just would have been white noise to him, and he had been like, "What?
2: <laughs> 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 will
3: you shut up! I'm trying to write a song." <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. But it's great. It's just an example of something that just it just shows how when something is this perfectly structured, and when there's this much character and this much satisfying dramatic payoff you forgive an awful lot yeah forgiven awful yeah. lot yeah
1: even even to the point where like they say like they never wrote the ending to intend to make a sequel mm. um but uh, like cuz like the the intention is clear from it if it it's not deliberate sequel bait it is literally just to leave the audience in such like a hyped giddy yeah, yeah. sense of like oh the cars flying <laughs> 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 and then end and then you leave you leave your audience just completely like whoa <laughs> and it, that like it's again just a, another detail of why it is like that kind of perfectly t- tuned Unlike the Amplifier it is that perfectly tuned <laughs> explosion <laughs> <Yeah>. of entertainment. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um man.
1: I, I would I would kinda of want to avoid talking too much about the sequels mm. in this episode due to the fact that they will be future episodes. Up, yeah. But um I think it would like we've talked a lot we talked a lot we've talked a lot about the kind of like spin off materials that come out of these things and Back to the Future is no stranger to it being part of the Amlin product. Alert. I don't know if you've you guys have either ever YouTubed it or remember it being on TV at all. There was a cartoon series yeah, in I the saw early nineties that. that continued the yeah, adventures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That also had live action segments with Bill Nye
2: and Chris <laughs> Lloyd doing <laughs> <laughs> And that was that Bob um, a... Bob Gale was in charge of that, right? Because he's kind of the, yeah, yeah. the future gatekeeper, <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: hmm And uh there's there's uh, there's a musical on the way um, that was supposed to be out last year, but things being as they are, it's been delayed. I had tickets um, to go see so, it in
2: Manchester, but... like this time, literally this time last year. I-, I was meant to be seeing it in Manchester, but uh, well, not this time. I think the end of March last year it would have been. But uh, mm-hmm. how was that? Was that happened, was not by? to be.
3: I'm seeing that. That's incredible. <laughs>
1: Apparently, it's pretty I good. Think... Again, I think Zemeckis and Gero have been quite involved in mm. like the book of it and the yeah, yeah production of it. So it is something that's gonna, like you said, it's got the go to the yeah. go the go ahead from like because they are like quite um quite protective of yes. it because they have yeah. both got uh, clauses in their wills that say nothing can be um or like they, there's a definitely a clause in their contract somewhere that no reboot mm-hmm. or sequel can be made in their lifetime like whilst they're still alive which i think is like just goes to a testament to show how much they kind of do uh collect have a great sense of protection over this but um all of this is all a long-winded way of me kind of getting to a big point of its uh kind of like tie-in legacy um and it, if you listen to our E.T. episode, you'll be familiar with the fact that um, we we use Joshua Glenn as our time travel um, <laughs> reporter to <laughs> go back in time and recount his adventures in on the, on the tie-in theme park rides <laughs> that was made for Amblin movies. And like uh, E.T., Back to the Future once had a theme park simulator ride at Universal Hollywood and Florida. As a main fixture until about what two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand
2: seven, yeah, yeah. So it was it was born yeah. just after part three, 1991, and uh, it died in two thousand seven. So I was um, I was very lucky that the, the same holiday trip on which I uh, took the E. T. ride, I also took the Back to the Future ride. This was uh, <laughs> <laughs> this was April two thousand six. We all went uh, with my gran, who I mentioned on the Goonies episode. She was not a fan of the Goonies um and uh <laughs> just a little bit of world building detail there um but w- whereas the et ride was uh it, w- it was a kind of it's a small world style thing with with animatronics and miniatures back to the future the ride was a simulator ride and um you sat in uh i can't think i don't know if it was just a one or if there were many of them but you would you'd strap yourself in and it was a fixed kind of booth that would you know pivot on a spot. it's a simulator you know what a simulator is like and uh, I think the gist of the film was that Biff had stolen the time machine and Doc Brown had Not to... Not again. Yeah, <laughs> again. And Doc Brown had to chase him through time to uh, fix his mess, to, to to fix what he'd done, which is... I've Actually, I've got a, a role-playing board game for Back to the Future that a friend of mine got me for my birthday, future guest Mike Perry, actually. And that's the same premise of, of the board game, is that Biff has stolen the... Time machine, and you've got to, okay. you've got to follow him, and you've got to fix what he's messed up. So it's a weirdly um, persistent narrative thread, um, <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm sure it's on YouTube. I'm sure we'll have to try and we'll try and find uh, the video on YouTube and, and, and link it in the description for the episode um, because Christopher Lloyd came back and um, uh, Tom Wilson came back to film whole new scenes um, for the ride, and it's much like um, the Terminator Voyage Through Time or whatever it's called. The That was at Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. It's a legitimate, officially sanctioned (laughs) piece of filmmaking. I can't think. I don't think Zemeckis directed it, um, but he certainly, like you say, he 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 signed off on it. Um, A hand, (laughs) yeah. And it was really cool because they had they had the they had one of the three actual DeLorean models sitting outside the building that housed the Back to the Future ride. Uh, And I've um, oh man, it was so cool. Yeah and you could you could get a photo with <laughs> it. It was kind of gated off but you could still get pretty close to it. Um and it was very very cool and I'm very very grateful that I was able to um <laughs> to take a ride on that before it was replaced with a Simpsons ride. Uh, yes, it's no longer there, unfortunately Is that
1: like the Big Simpsons Land? Yeah, that's in Universal yeah
2: now. <laughs> It's the centrepiece of the Big Simpsons Land And I'm just checking now It's it's on, the movies on the, the Back to the Future Ride movie Is on the DVD and it's on the Blu-ray And it's 32 minutes long, apparently Which is longer <laughs> than you might think uh, Oh, you know who directed it? It's directed by David DeVos and Douglas Trumbull <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, Ooh, written as by in the
2: VFX guy Douglas Trump Yeah, and it's written by Peyton pa- oh, written okay. by Peyton Reed and Bob Gale. Okay. What in that? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so we'll definitely link to this in the uh, in the description of the episode because I, I want to watch that again. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to watch it yeah. again before this, but yeah, it was great fun. A lot of fun, and it's a real Have shame you... that it's no. longer Have you
1: been out to Universal at all?
3: Harley. oh no no i've not i've not had the chance to go to the states yet um but it's funny actually because my wife's got friends out there uh in florida and sort of in those areas and i, I don't want to sort of rain on your parade a little bit but like no, nothing really that doesn't interest me weirdly <laughs> that sort of thing like I, don't know. I, I like the idea i like the idea because i've been to theme parks obviously but i just for me it's like if i'm traveling that far out yeah i, I don't want to stand in a queue for six days yeah. you know my entire holiday but having said that i i don't know if i think if if i was in that moment maybe i'd make a different decision um and, and to be fair like you said the back to the future Rise et I, I read up on the terminator one ages ago they put a <laughs> lot of effort into those yeah <laughs> huge amount I was, i'm actually quite time. impressed yeah. by it.
2: yeah ah
1: uh. Cool. Wild amount of the talent involved for that theme park ride <laughs> And
3: the fact that it's canon That's incredible yeah. <laughs> Amazing <laughs> I, I'm also
1: glad to hear that you now have a New Back to the Future board game to accompany Your Back to the Future Monopoly Yes
2: yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. 50% of the board games that I own Are, um, are um, Back to the Future based And about 90% of the board games that I own Are Monopoly variations.
3: Is, is there a Back to the you... Future Cluedo?
2: Oh, no doubt there's a Back to the Future oh, That'd be Cludo. fun.
1: That'd, that'd be, be fun, wouldn't it? Would it be like just kind of murders taking place in different time periods? Oh, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, nah, I don't think
3: there is. It but... was all man <laughs> Peabody with a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's it for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh man <laughs> Oh I
2: wanna keep on talking about Back to the Future forever. <laughs> <laughs> what
3: well, you guys get to? You've got two more episodes. We've yet. got two more to there's, go, yeah, man. Yeah, two yeah. two, two, yeah, more, kind of two more parts to go. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't it's know, great. just actually b- b- before you know, before we kind of end the topic on this, I really want to know just to sort of mm. tease it out, what do you guys make of the trilogy? As a whole,
2: love it myself. I, part, parts two and three, I mean, this is, this is, I would say, even though it's got flaws, I think this is a perfect movie insofar as it does everything it sets out to mm. do flawlessly. And uh, it's such a perfectly constructed piece of blockbuster mm. entertainment. Um, I don't think parts two and three operate on the same level, but I think, you know, as a whole, it's a really fun trilogy. And I, I love the conceptual, I love how weirdly conceptual they get especially mm. i prefer part three to part two i think but i love the swing that part two takes it's such a bonkers concept it's a bonkers thing for a sequel to do and it it just takes risks that it didn't need to take which is i i have endless appreciation for so yeah i, I love them i love
1: them yeah i have a similar similar so I, I would also put part three over part two It just okay, if just because I like a Western mm-hmm. a <laughs> um, yeah. As a as a as a trilogy, it was always one that was like all three of them were quite constant mainstays at growing up and what have you. So there is a lot of nostalgic attachment to them. That the the only like part two is one that I have a, a weirder relationship with. It's just because of the Martin McFly character just feels so different, mm. particularly in the opening stretch of that film. That slightly sours, particularly yeah. part two for me, which I'm sure we'll build upon in the episodes when we get there. But as, as a kind of like uh, a, a a trilogy that I I grew up with, it's st- it's still one that I will go back and yeah. watch all three of them quite quite regularly. <laughs> How about yourself, Harley?
3: Yes, I same as you guys really. I I love all I love all of them. I just think as a trilogy, if you're going to sit down and and do a series of films. It's a really great one to get into. They're all yeah. just great, fun movies.
2: And that's the thing; it is just yeah. fun. It's just fun. It's just mm. fun. So much fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's Zemeckis. Oh, I, w- I wish he, I wish he would. Uh... Oh, yeah. I different.
1: I, on the yeah. like kind of grand Zemeckis theme as well. Uh, I I know you've gone through that big whole rewatch, mm. Josh. Um, and I'm not too sure how many more of Zemeckis' joints you've seen harley but i i don't think it would be too controversial to say that this is i think that easily his best i think oh easily without
2: with that uh, yeah. probably uh, probably probably a close-ish second is roger rabbit i think it doesn't yeah. i don't quite have the same level of childhood affection for it but i still think it's uh it's such again it's such a weirdly risky weirdly horny um <laughs> Uh, movie that you just, you just wouldn't see that kind of risk taken uh, not, I, again I, I'm, worried, I'm worried that I often sound like an old man yelling at the sky on this podcast when I'm about oh film's, the, <laughs> films these days but I do think that there, there are Zemeckis was had so many risky projects that were so successful on such a huge scale that I just don't think you'll see the likes of really um,
0: mm.
2: not in the same way certainly there, there, there's, there's so much corporate capital invested in um so many properties these days and the fact that we call them properties (laughs) speaks volumes and there's like an inbuilt desire to be safe i think or to to sort of minimize risks and zemeckis somehow through the aforementioned confluence of events was able to just take these wild swings and in the 80s he had his his highest success rate this being the biggest one um Mm -hmm. but yeah man I just love a weird blockbuster, and uh, he, he was able to make weird blockbusters on a huge level for a while, and that's cool. It <sighs> definitely is. It's what the like pinnacle
0: of weird blockbusters, <laughs> yeah. I think, is like a, a,
3: a nice summation for this film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. Like you guys said, it's, there's a lot of stuff in here, which is, as much as it's fun and has that kind of silliness to it, as you say, there are definitely moments where it's like, huh. I don't remember being quite like you said, the whole bit where Biff jumps in the car with Lorraine's like, Oh wow, this is taking a turn or you know mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's casual racism shortly after that. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, <laughs> a few moments in it, but as you say, overall it's just a really enjoyable film. It's just yeah, what's not to love about it? I've I, it's rare I think you meet somebody who says, Back to the future, Oh, I didn't like it. It's it's yeah, quite yeah. rare very true and I feel like very when
2: you true. meet someone that says that it's a whole thing for them it's like they build their personality <laughs> around it. Uh, it it's like don't
3: think about it don't think it's a like, whole
2: point it's like people who say they don't like the Beatles uh, uh, shut up just shut mm. up uh, who are you who are you trying to impress don't base your personality yeah. around this dislike of a popular thing mm. uh, if you don't like bad to the future make like a tree and leave <laughs> <laughs> We didn't do as many impressions as I thought, actually, uh, <laughs> in this episode. Or <laughs> well, maybe we did. Make like a
1: tree and get out of here. I, I, I even did it wrong. I did it right, but did it wrong. <laughs> we idiot. You sound like a damn fool
2: when you say it wrong.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, unless you guys have any more uh, points you wanted to make about Bats of the Future, I think we can wrap it up.
2: Up um... here. Um that's pretty, pretty, pretty exhaustive. Yeah, I mean, I, I could, yeah. I could riff with you guys for two more hours, but yeah, I, I don't think I have. I think I've yeah. covered <laughs> all the points I wanted to make about this. Um, I'm fresh out of Plutonium. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't
1: need. I don't have that one point twenty one chicken. One point twenty one inches.
3: Yeah. Wait a I minute. To the same point, I, a, I, I think I'm. I'm good.
2: Wait a minute, Andy. You, you're telling me that our podcast about Back to the Future it's over <laughs>
1: it's over buddy <laughs> it won't be the end of the road for the back to the future franchise so don't worry josh <laughs> there will be more and there's, there's um dovetail into there's this. many more
2: imp- opportunity for impressions in parts two and three as well absolutely so, yeah there's yeah.
1: many a wild line reading in there that i'm sure we'll <laughs> have
2: fun with
1: <laughs> so that has been our our ramble about Back to the Future. Um, in our next episode, we're still going to be sticking in 1985 for Barry Levinson's adventure movie, Young Sherlock Holmes. We can't quite get out of 1985 just yet. <laughs> um, if you fancy watching Young Sherlock Holmes along with us and don't have it on disc, you can buy or rent the film digitally from Amazon, Apple TV, Chili, Google Play, Microsoft Store. Sky Store and YouTube,
2: uh, if you have any affiliation or any relationship to the film and want to share your thoughts, please tweet us at Ramblin Amblin or email us at Ramblin about Amblin uh while you're on your phone, uh, just give us a little like and a subscribe, and if you want to write a review, hey, who are we to call you buttheads? <laughs> don't call us bat heads, Yeah, don't call us <laughs> plus, <laughs> the things only, because, I mean, what if they don't like us? What if they say we're no good? I just don't think I could take that kind of rejection.
3: <laughs> and you shouldn't get into podcasting.
2: <laughs> <is my voice>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that's the gambit you're on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've put our minds to it, so fingers crossed we can accomplish anything. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just cramming Indeed. them in now. I'm sorry. Let's let's <laughs> yeah,
1: make them work when you
2: can. <laughs> I,
1: the last thing to say is uh, thank you so much, Harley, for joining us for this chat on Back to the Future. Oh, uh, my pleasure! It was has been a joy to mm-hmm. join you for Fundamentals, uh, respectively, as well. And yeah. uh, speaking of Fundamentals, where can the good people find yourself and the podcast?
3: Um, yes, yeah, you can find me basically wherever you get your podcast, more or less. It's just Fundamentals Podcast. If you go to Twitter and Instagram, is at Fundamentals Pod. Uh, we've also got my other account just at Harley Mumford if you want to come and say hi to me personally but obviously I run both so anything you want to you know check out or say I'd I'd greatly appreciate it really Uh, both of you guys uh, by the time this podcast comes out actually both of your episodes Mm -hmm. will be available so I highly recommend Mm -hmm. people go and check those out and yeah just give us a follow
2: it's a fab podcast
1: yeah if If you've got anything you want to like gush about as well I'm sure (laughs) you'll be more than open to more people like coming in with their topics of of love and absolutely uh, adoration.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Guest spots are genuinely open, so if people are interested, then yeah, definitely uh, hit my DMs, as they say. <laughs>
2: Slide into Harley's <laughs> DM. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for joining us, uh, Harley. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. And, yeah, uh, man. Likewise. We wish you the very best of luck. Not that you need it, of course. With uh, with fundamentals.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you
2: and uh thank you josh as well
1: i i, I know this would have been uh the, one of the big ones coming up <laughs> on this whole whole lineup of films for you oh, so like you've uh you've thanks again for your your
2: ever 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 great levels of enthusiasm <laughs> you, you, you've both made me a very happy boy today so thank you for indulging me. <laughs> thank you for indulging me <laughs>
1: And of course, thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in once again to Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast. We'll be back next time with our episode on Young Sherlock Holmes. Until then, take care.
0: That's the power of love!